Uh, we're rolling. Whenever anybody's ready to do anything about anything. Do Do we still remember how to do this? I don't know. That's That's, that's the crazy thing. I don't know. You want me to start this thing, or should I just, you know, keep talking about how better you're, you're not? No, 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 please, start it. Okay. <laughs> uh, from NeedCoffee.com, this is The Soundboard, episode 37. Uh, I'm J.M. Tupley. I, I do remember who I am after a few months off. Uh, coming up on this edition of The Soundboard, uh, Coachella. They've announced the lineup, and there are also some new records coming. One has to do with the other stick around um we'll also be looking back at the careers of uh lou reed phil everly uh phil chevron uh coming up uh we'll also be taking a look back at 2013 because it's the first show of 2014 obviously we have to uh so we'll figure out what what if anything we learned and plus i don't know the insane clown posse versus the fbi just for shits and giggles uh it is the first show of the new year. I have re, re, uh, relocated the uh, the crew, uh, as usual, uh, so I will bring them in now. Uh, Rob Levy, who is a uh, host of KDX Justice, Justice Position, as well as uh, film critic and uh, local arts magnet in St. Louis. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm fine. Also, uh, Chief Bottle Washer and the head guy of NeedCoffee.com, uh, who, who posts this, uh, it's Widget Walls. Uh, howdy. The problem with being a local arts magnet is that if you get too close to local arts, you release you erase them. So just be careful, Rob. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. You have to wear foil hats and everything to avoid uh, detection. Uh, saran wrap hats, but you're close. Yes. Okay. okay. Yep. You got to keep your head fresh. Yeah, I tried. I tried the Devo hat. It just didn't really work. I would think the Devo hat would be more successful. I would just like to pay five dollars to see Rob in a Devo hat. No, it's not that exciting. <laughs> I tried. I tried, listeners. Uh, so, gentlemen, I don't believe, because it actually did post in November, but I don't think we've actually done a show since October. So um, no. so let's clear the air. Anything that uh, you picked up over the, uh, the the winter holiday besides illnesses that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, the listeners might want to know about? Oh, God. Uh, I don't know. I, I well, as far as did as, you hear anything new, Edge? Did did I hear anything new? Uh, yes. I I I did. Um, I I sort of I sort of completed a a project that I'll be posting the results of, in which I tried to listen to anything that came out in the year 2012 that I could have possibly been interested in, um, which was somewhere along the lines of sampling 9,000 tracks, uh, to see if I could actually change what my thoughts were about the music in 2012 because you know how it is you go oh what was the best album in 2013 and i don't i mean i'm not like you guys i don't have time to listen to everything that comes out when it comes out neither like, do, neither do like, I. like you guys or at least i can't fake it as well as you guys can so i i actually took the time to try some stuff and found some interesting things um but of course because we're on skype and it sucks in all the bandwidth around it uh like a black hole uh, all of my programs that I could use to tell you about that stuff is gone. Uh, I will tell you, though, that uh, I, as of right now, my two favorite albums of 2013 would have been uh, uh, Woodkid, uh, Golden Age, and uh, Cult's uh, Static. Okay. Yeah, Static was my favorite record. They both, yeah. they both made me very, very happy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a bunch of other stuff that uh, I'm sure I'll be posting at some point. But 
there's just a lot to listen to. And a lot came out like at the very end of the year. Um, yes. Yeah, some of it, some of which we will be discussing as part of the big topic. Even even Beyonce came out with a song I liked. How weird what, is Beyonce, that? Did, did Beyonce release something over the holidays, which? Uh, yeah, she kind of did. I don't. I didn't hear about that. Yeah, and and, oh. and can I just point out, Tuffley, <laughs> that absolutely nobody pointed out that uh, oh, this is so amazing. This this no lead up to it. I'm like, we were talking about David Bowie doing that like a year ago. Shut up, everyone. Shut up. Yeah, yeah. Nobody gave David Bowie any props. That's okay. That's okay. Beyonce, David Bowie, and my bloody Valentine cut the check. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that a little more later. Um, but uh, Rob, do you have anything that you that you may have picked up over the uh, over over the vacay? Uh, well, don't laugh at me. I finally heard the Disclosure record. Oh yeah, Settle, which is a really good record. I thought. Yeah, um, I was kind of leery because I'm kind of like, okay, everybody's going to try to sound like Daft Punk now, and I'm kind of picky if I listen to anything that sounds remotely like house music. I'm yeah. a little picky. Um, so that was surprisingly really good. Uh, I've discovered um, a really great band from England called the September Girls that uh, sound like a cross, cross between Lush and the Dum Dum Girls, kind of. They're yeah. from They're from Dublin. And uh, they released for the Irish version of Record Store Day, they released a cassette. Did they? Nice. Yeah. So imagine my shock when I get a post in the mail and it's got a cassette in it. It's like, wow, 1994 <laughs> called. This is great. But um, all their stuff is posted online. You can find it. They're really good. And uh, I'm also quite liking the new Kaiser Chiefs record as well. Yeah, so, when, does that, when does that come out here? Does that come out in March here? It comes out in England in March. America comes out in April. Okay. And it's So we're not as behind loud. as I thought we were going to be about it. Good. It's, a, it's, it's the first big stomper of the year, sort of, their, their new one, Misery Company. And um, I, like, uh, I like the new Warpaint record a lot, which is self-titled. That is, and, as we record this, that will be out probably by the time this comes out. Sorry, I sometimes I, I always forget about release dates. I'm sorry. Yes, um, I know. I had to remember. Right. I had to remember that too. Sorry. That's, um, right. <laughs> that's at the end of the last. Year. Well, yeah. Stupid the, record labels. Oh, the, yeah, I know. The other record that kind of came to a little late was this band called Grooms. Yeah. Uh, but I like that record a lot, and I uh, got to that one a little late, and also the classics record. Um, C-L-A-S-S-I-X, which kind of is more, sounds more like Chromio than Daft Punk, but they are sort of the hybrid of both. So I got to that a little late. And um, and another new band called Beacon, um, which I think came out in early 2013, that I heard kind of sporadically the song and said, you know, I do like this. So, yeah. That is the nuts and bolts short version of stuff I liked. Ah, Okay, so yes, I also found a song on the uh, Beyonce album that I liked, um, which again, shocking. Um, in addition, I did find and and I and I think probably Aaron turned me onto this. Um, and I'm not sure how to pronounce the name of the band. It, it looks like Haim, but I've been told yeah. it's pronounced Haim. Is that am I am I am I in the neighborhood um, I, for that? I, I have I have no idea. I I will just call Haim, and by the time we have our panel. September. <laughs> yeah, they're they're from California. There are three girls from California, and they're 
really actually pretty fantastic. Um, and the album's called Days Are Gone. Um, and people jumped on it over the summer and I missed it. So there we go. Hey, hi, um, Days Are Gone. Great album. I think the I think the problem with that record is that when they came out, everyone said, oh, this is like the female Hanson or they're really poppy or nobody gave them any comparisons that sort of made you want to listen to them. Well, yeah, I thought they, I, kind of, they waved the age thing off as kind of like a pop thing. And it is a really good pop record. But then yeah. it then the kind of the indie kind of indie channels took it and kind of boosted it, which yeah. is weird. But uh, so there you go on that. And um, the Lord record, uh, Kim, Kim got it and hooked me up to that. Uh, the uh, I think it's Lord. Lord is. Uh, yeah, I, th- Lord, I think sure. it's Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Although and, I. I, I must say toughly that uh, of the um, uh, her, her contribution to the Catching Fire soundtrack was one of the yeah. best things on there. Yeah, uh, an absolutely uh, fantastic rendition of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Um, oh, and you did remind me of something else that I that I found was uh, the expanded version of Bastille's Bad Blood. Yes, which... I do have Bastille was one of the things I found, but the expanded version did that just come out? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was towards the end of the year. Okay. It's got like a second disc worth of stuff, um, although it does not have the other thing I found by them, which was the cover of uh, I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight. They did for yeah. Virgin's, what is it, 40th? Yeah. I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, which, again, another excellent cover that turns everything on its head. And oh. and speaking of covers, one of the yeah. things that I was going to mention, Tears for Fears did a bunch of Animal Collective songs. Well, yeah, Tears for Fears has a new, they're, they're going to tour this year. Yeah. And they've been covering a bunch of different songs. They post them online. There's an Arcade Fire cover. Yeah. There's... Um, I think they did uh, one or two Animal Collective songs. I know they did My yeah, Girls. Did, I think they did uh, yeah. Summertime Clothes somewhere, too. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sorry. My brain shut down when you said Tears for Fears was covering Animal Collective. I just yes. got back yeah. online. What? <laughs> Which? Yeah. Which? Yeah. I want you to be as open to that as you are with Rafe Fines doing comedy, because it works. Oh, no, I, no. I I, no, no, I, b- believe me, I, uh, uh, I, that, I just, it, it clicks into place so well, but it's just, it's like one of those things where you go, I can't wait to see that. It's going to be either spectacular or hilarious. Um, speaking, yeah. of, speaking of hilarious and talking about Bastille, though, I would also point people, if you've not heard the live lounge cover they did of uh, We Can't Stop by Miley Cyrus, uh-huh. it's epic. Yeah, it makes me so happy. So anyway, but that's that's the, uh, that's enough about Bastille. But yeah, uh, they they seem to just blow up on my radar last yeah. year, uh, especially in the second half of the year. So oh yeah, they're they're really good. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to point out, and uh, I think Kim might have mentioned this over on Justice before, but uh, Scott Bradley and Postmodern Jukebox. Um, I will throw that out all day long if anybody wants a recommendation. Basically, they take uh, basically current pop songs and they do covers of them, and they do it in kind of a, uh, an, 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 uh, as if it were a past style of music, basically. Um, if some of you guys who video game may be familiar with Scott Bradley, he did some of the um, pop song covers on uh, Bioshock Infinite. Uh, he's the guy responsible for those, some of those. Uh, so, uh, Wait, really is this, not... is this the, I, I think I remember this. Was this like the, the, was it all different eras or is it like 20 swing or something like that? Or some of it's 20 swing, okay. some of it's Motown, some of it's really, so yeah. it, it sounds like big daddy with an expanded scope. 
yeah, yeah. Okay. Basically, basically they shift. They did a, they did a, um, they'll, they did an album of, um, they did Nickelback. They did a co- album of Nickelback as Motown covers. Oh Jesus. It's it, it it sounds weird, but it it's it sounds it, it, on paper it looks really weird, but it sounds great. I I don't understand it, but well, some 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 artists just create things that are meant to be either covered or remixed. Yeah. Yeah. While we're while we're on the subject of covers, briefly yeah. I'll just throw that out there. The We Are Scientists cover of uh, Take My Breath Away by Berlin is pretty yeah. Cool. I was, oh, yeah. Okay. That's nice. That's nice. So uh, yeah, Scott Bradley and Postmodern Jukebox, uh, they tend to release singles. Uh, they're all over iTunes. They're on Spotify. Check them out. Um, so moving along, uh, some things that are usually in this spot that would be album watch, um, uh, the Coachella lineup has been announced. And uh, as my theory tends to hold, every time Coachella gets announced, a uh, bunch of artists have new records coming out uh, that are on the lineup. So let's see if that works now. Um, so we, uh, so obviously, if you take out the bands that already have records out right now, um, Arcade Fire, which I'm kind of curious because I know Arcade Fire was having this costuming requirement thing at their own shows. I think are, I, I don't think they're attempting this at the festivals because that would be kind of uncomfortable. Well, that kind of got weird, and they kind of said we just we didn't mandate it. We just said it would be cool, so they kind of took a step back on that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I would I would love to see I would love to see the girl talk crowd in costumes. I think they already show up in costumes anyway, but um, <laughs> but I think for festivals that would be rather uncomfortable. I, I know around day four of Dragon Con costumes get a bit weird, so. I can imagine what Coachella would be like. Um, but um, so we take out the bands that already have records. So Arcade Fire, um, The Knife's already got a record out, Disclosure, Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, Pharrell actually does have an album coming out pretty soon. Uh, so does Lana Del Rey. Um, oh, not... now, now, Toughly, please tell me your theory holds. And I see Fishbone is on day three of both weekends. Please tell me that means new Fishbone <laughs> album. I have been hearing things about either a new Fishbone album or uh, one of the guys from Fishbone having a record coming out. I don't, I can't confirm it, but I think I, so. I've heard remasters and new album. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Happy. Uh, but uh, Girl Talk's got a new record coming out, which will probably be out on the internet first. Chromio's got a new record coming. Um, let's see if I Motorhead. I, I think the Motorhead album came out in November, actually, but Motorhead has a record coming out. Um, and I'm um, looking at this. Uh, what else? What else? Uh, War Pain, of course. Obviously, we talked about them just a minute ago. Uh, Little Dragon's got a record coming out there in the lineup. Uh, Beck is one of the headliners on the third day. Uh, he's got a record coming out, I believe, in March. Um, it's it's actually a, a a recorded thing that you actually go and buy, not sheet music. Just in case you're wondering, because so, he did that. So so which, so, so toughly, which which I know he alternates. Is this the weird? You'd think I was on drugs, but this is actually how I am back. Or radio playback? I don't know because the singles he put out last year, I don't know if they're actually on no. the record that's coming out. So I, I I have no indication of what it actually is because he. He put out a couple of singles last year, which were a little 
sort of more sound Weird. collage experiments. Mm. Well, um, and then he's also been doing stuff with Jack White. So I don't know if that's the stuff that's going to be on the record or the experimental uh -oh. stuff is going to be on the record. Actually, what, what I, what I, I think I've answered my own question because the very fact that we know it's coming out says to me that it's radio friendly. His weird albums tend to just materialize as if, you know, like six months ago, as if yeah. they were released at that time. That's how I tend to find them, where you go, I, I didn't even know he put out an album then. Yeah, apparently it's been out for six months. <laughs> uh, so uh, staring down the rest of this, I think, does Muse have a record coming out? Well, they, just, they just put out a, uh, like a DVD Blu-ray okay. live thing at the end of last year, I thought. Okay. I think that's when it came out. I, I, it may be time for them at the end of the year. I don't know. But uh, Fox the People have a record coming out. Uh, maybe yeah, yeah. Say what? There's a single on that. Radio 6 is all over it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mogwai, uh, their uh, Rave Tapes record comes out, uh, probably as this thing will be posted. So they'll oh, have a record yes. out. It's pretty nice. It's pretty I'm, nice. I cannot wait. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, I'm going to go on a long, I'm going to go on a long limb and say Frank Turner's probably going to have a record out again. Yeah. He, yeah. That's he, when does he ever not have a record out? <laughs> when does he not have a record out? Uh, we've gotten, we've gotten at the year mark for, uh, for the last album. Uh, so I'm sure a Frank Turner album will surface probably by Coachella. Um, but I think everybody else has a record out. I'm looking at this. Um, BDI, I don't care. Um, Little Dragon would be nice if we got the record out. And they've uh, been working. They've been working with Big Boy. So who knows? Uh, Big Gigantic has an album coming out this year. Yeah. Uh, so which is good. Uh, but, but I believe the gigantic announcement of Coachella is probably Outcast. Um, speaking of, <laughs> very nice. Um, I, I believe the giant announcement. The giant announcement of Coachella is is outcast. Um, that will be the first official reunion gig, although they've been trying to contain themselves from showing up at various places in Atlanta over the last couple of weeks, namely starting at the Genome Onesha, uh, reportedly. Um, I'd like to see them turn up at a, a filming of The Walking Dead. Just just, you know, if they can't stay away from Atlanta gigs, that would be great. But it's like, but it's like they have been holding back from jumping up on stage at like various gigs for like weeks. Um, so hopefully they can contain themselves and make Coachella the first one. So apparently, now, apparently contractually obligation now kind of adds something to it. But. Well, there you go. Now, now question, did, did they officially break up or was it just sort of a hiatus? We're going to go do other albums thing. I, I, I never heard of it as a breakup. Um, it was just they put out Idlewild, and yeah. then Andre kept doing movies. Right. And then yeah. a couple of years later, Big Boy showed up with his first record. Um, so there, yeah, there, wasn't, there wasn't an official breakup, but there was sort of a um, – we've. there wasn't an official breakup, but there was a period where they stopped talking to each other oh. clearly. Oh, um, I think it was somewhere during Idlewild where they just both decided to stop talking to each other. Um, but there was never anything official about a breakup. Mm, okay. Just curious. And depending on what you believe there is, there either is or is not a new album coming with this too. Um, I haven't heard anything one way or the other. So I know yeah, Big Boy's got another record. I know Big Boy's got another record coming out and I know he's been working with Old Dragon and I know he did something with Kate Bush, which Dear God, maybe we get to hear someday. 
Wow. Okay. Uh, although, if, if they did want to put out something, I'm sure they could put out a B-Sides remixes rare tracks thing and call it good. They, they actually did that. They actually did oh, Have they that. already done that? <laughs> they did that after Idlewild. And oh, I okay. Think that, that, I think they put that out so that uh, Big Boy could get out of his recording commitment with uh, uh, the record label because Big Boy put out his records under Def Jam. Right. So I think that was a I, I think that was the contractual obligation greatest hits thing that they put out a couple of years uh, back. Okay. But um here's the thing. In case you miss Outcast at Coachella, you're thinking, oh no, I've missed them. Well, you'd be wrong. Um <laughs> in fact in fact, if you live in an area that has a lot of festivals, you stand a good chance of seeing them at least probably three times. They're playing like 40 freaking festivals over the festival season. So they're playing, I, I believe, and I may be incorrect about this, but I'll go ahead on a limb and say this. They're probably playing all of them. Well, I mean, that makes sense though, too, because it's probably more financially lucrative to just play the big, large festivals, play all the big crowds, yeah, have all the big media in one place and play those than it is to just go city to city. Then also, if you just do the big tours, if you're tentatively getting along with your music partner, yeah. that's probably a better arrangement than being on the road for four straight months. Yeah. And uh, and uh, by the way, ATL listeners, take note, uh, Outcast is headlining uh, Counterpoint, not Music Midtown, Counterpoint. Some people were suspecting Music Midtown, but no, it's, it's Counterpoint, which is actually coming back this year after the big uh, EDM festival that was here last year. So, uh, counterpoint, they didn't have a counterpoint last year, I don't think. So, oh, okay. So, uh, what was it? The, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the pop world festival what was that the, the one that was at the, the farm? I forget, uh, or something like that. Although I see on counterpoint that, uh, we get Outcast, uh, Pretty Lights, Big Gigantic, yes, Janelle Monet, Sleigh Bells. Damn. Counterpoint is very freaking interesting. Damn. Uh, and, and counterpoint, counterpoint. What counterpoint is is traditionally, traditionally counterpoint is sort of an EDM sort of a DJ festival. So that's what I thought. But so but you get kind expanding. of a cross section. Yeah, they're kind of expanding. So you get what used to happen is, and Big Boy headlined a couple of years ago. Um, but you get the mixture of DJs and uh, techno techno outfits, and uh, and Skrillex headlined one year, and. Uh, dubstep and and all sorts of stuff and i think they're trying to streamline it a little bit uh by adding a couple of rock bands into the mix so it looks so, interesting i'm sorry rob what is uh, it? i believe is it in september it, it's traditionally no, it's, in september it's it's april uh april, oh they've moved it up okay. april april 25th through the 27th they have moved out of contention with uh with um oh. with midtown Interesting, because usually, because usually September in downtown Atlanta is a bit of a nightmare for people who you know don't like sci-fi cons, don't like festivals. Just stay in your house for the entire month. Um, now, but it's where, great, where do they it's have this? Move this? It's it. It's apparently Kingston Downs, um, which is in Floyd County. I'm trying to see where that is now because I'm like, what? Where? Uh? Uh, oh, it's apparently way out apparently it's yeah. it's, where, it's where they do the steeplechase oh good we get outcast and horses oh okay yeah. so uh so yeah um 
again, so if you're if you're looking forward to seeing Outcast, you're probably going to get quite a few chances to see Outcast. Um, I, I I'm going to go out on a limb too. They're probably playing Lollapalooza too. I think so. I mean, yeah, that's a safe bet. It's a safe bet they're going to do Lollapalooza and Bonnaroo and all of those. I mean, like the, that's where all the big money is. You probably make yeah. more money doing the festivals. So. Yeah, which is weird because usually bands usually have exclusivity on some festivals or some groups of festivals. No, Outcast mm-hmm. is playing all of them, <laughs> which is great. Um, the other quick thing that I'll throw in is uh, the replacements, uh, which I believe uh, is is interesting despite their uh, their their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, snub. Um, I think they have a new record too. Uh, th- I have heard rumors of a new record. Which is why I was like, while some of them are still talking, please get them into the hall. But, you know, well, they don't listen to me. Poverty does a lot of things. It does. Huh. Uh, but that is that is our guide to Coachella. Um, now, and, and our album can, can you – I have heard various sources on this, and I couldn't find it on the Coachella site. Yeah. But I have heard that there's like a wax tracks thing going on where they're going to have the revolting cocks in front 242 and throw kill cult. But I haven't seen it on the site. Um, I have not heard anything about this, but they do. Uh, Coachella does the thing like Lollapalooza does, where they have like tents, and they're unannounced. Because yeah. um, ah, I know. Okay. Because I know. Because I know what was we were talking about it last year. I think Janelle Monae did a tent, and CeeLo showed up to one of the ten things. So they have a they have a they have tents, uh, and they did this at Glastonbury too. I've heard. Yeah. Uh, where they have, uh, where they have basically have the tents, but they don't say who's going to be playing in the tents. So it's sort of like uh, one year. Um, I seem to recall one year that we were talking about this that uh, that um, that uh, them crooked vultures just showed up to one of the tents and started playing, uh, which was the year the record came out. Um, that uh, that they just showed up and said, "Oh yeah, we're we're going to play a set now." So. Uh, so that tends to happen. So uh, I, 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 that'll be interesting to see who shows up. But uh, yes, it's possible they're probably doing one of the tens. So uh, toughly, I have, I have a quick addendum to Album Watch. Yes. Uh, some people that uh, that uh, uh, you'll well, you'll see why one of them is not playing Coachella, but uh, most of these are not playing Coachella. <laughs> um, I, I uh, I'm looking forward to the Sun Kill Moon has an album coming out February fourth. Um, Lost in the Trees has an album coming out the 18th of February, which is like a uh, – they're a folk pop band with strings. That's that's all I yeah. need to know. Um, St. Vincent's new album comes out at the end of February. I was going to bring that up, St. Vincent's record. Yes. Uh, Elbow has a new album coming out as well. Um, I think that's in March. They're probably uh, headlining Glastonbury. That would make sense. Uh, it's, uh, Hold Steady is March 25th. Uh, Actually, they have two records coming out. If you, really? I believe, I believe they have an EP that is coming out earlier for people who supported them on Kickstarter. Nice. Uh, so they have an EP that's coming out for people on Kickstarter, and then the album. Uh, and then uh, there is apparently uh, an album coming out on the twenty fifth from some guy named Johnny Cash. Um, yes, that was from his old Columbia soundtrack. Yes, uh, well, his old Columbia recordings uh, yeah, contract. Well, "Quote unquote lost 1980s sessions." Uh, yeah, they dumped the record out when they dumped him on his contract. So there you go. Yeah, there's a the the biggest archive of undone of unreleased Johnny Cash stuff is now going to be from the 80s because everyone wrote them off. 
so there's all these recordings that he was shopping around the labels or stuff that he was, you know, he did for other people that he recorded demos of. There's just going to be a flood probably for the next five to ten years of Johnny Cash material. Well, oh, yeah, and, and I'm waiting on the floodgates to open on the uh, Complete Highwaymen material because that's that that stuff's all still floating around. And, and and I'm reading that apparently the the person who is uh, who compiled the album and is putting it out is his son John Carter. So that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And a I, lot of this stuff and a lot of this stuff is from Johnny's vaults because we've been getting those bootleg albums. Right. But I'd like yeah. to point out that this means this means Disney that you can't have a quality John Carter. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, that's all right. <laughs> okay, so as per usual, whenever we go off for a bit, uh, we, we lose a couple of people. Not that it means that every time we go away, people die, but every time we go away, people die. It's just a thing. Um, we're going to start with Lou Reed um, because a lot it's of the Reed. music, it's Lou Reed, and a lot of the music we listen to would not sound the same without him. I would believe. Um, uh, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Rob, Lou Reed. Where do you start? Um, Lou that's Reed. I, 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 I have gotten, I have gotten in, in physical shouting matches with people about this towards the end, latter part of 2013. When I, when I would say that Lou Reed was just as influential of an American musician as Elvis Presley. Um, and I say that because, literally, he when he was in the Velvet in Underground, so many ties. well, when he did, when he did the Velvet Underground, that was came out of nowhere. It literally yeah. came out of nowhere, and it changed how music was done. <clears throat> and that's then. I haven't gotten to the later ripple on that. Then his solo records, he makes a really amazing record called Transformer with David Bowie, that sort of takes the idea of a frontman leaving a band and cements that it can be done. Here's the model for it. Then he makes metal music, which is basically, I want to get out of my record contract. I want to be experimental. I'm going to make an hour record of pure noise that is guaranteed to empty every home that's played in. And on top of it, he has this sort of side career where he sort of mentors other people, and he's just sort of around being Lou Reed, sort of the cult of personality. So everyone from Morrissey to Queens of the Stone Age to Stephen Malcolmus to the Pixies, the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, to the Jesus and Mary Chain, to The Cure, where do I stop? All these people influenced by the Lou most, Reed. The most recent yeah. one that's outed themselves is Metric. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's sort of like it's it's a, it's it's like when we lost a beetle, kind of in the same yeah. way in terms of the effect on other people. Um, and it, what makes it interesting is, you know, in the same way that when Elvis came up, they said he didn't really have a voice, he was sloppy, it wasn't really pure. Lou Reed did not have the best singing voice in the world, which is fine by me. What really made Lou Reed though was his lyrics and his sort of just brash, I don't care sort of out their attitude yeah and constantly pushing the envelope constantly sort of saying i'm going to make a record i want to make and for the, the longest amount of time he had a label that would let him do whatever he wanted to do yeah you know? and um so he constantly pushed that envelope and was sort of 
from what I understand, after everything, after he died, this guy always made himself available to other musicians. I mean, uh-huh. probably the best uh, quote I read about Lou Reed after he died came from Iggy Pop, who just said willingly wonderful things about him. And, you know, I never thought uh, thought of Iggy Pop as being like a completely elegant and elevated sort of speaker. I always thought of him as being Iggy Pop, you know, as in his persona. But the way Iggy Pop described Lou Reed was pretty incredible. And so obviously he had an effect on on him. And just sort of like literally name your five favorite bands at random and somehow their lineage will be traced back to either Lou Reed or the Velvet Underground. Yeah. It's just that kind of a deal. The telling and, thing the telling thing to me about Lou Reed, uh, particularly no matter what phase of your career you look at, is he's very good at taking if you what looks like on paper a very basic pop song and yeah. distorting it to various ends. And that seemed to be yeah. what he was really, really good at. Yeah, and I mean and when you take like I think and I've had this ongoing battle with other people as well, I think Perfect Day is his masterpiece more than Walk on the Wild Side. Um, and not just because you hear it everywhere, everywhere, but it's just there's a song that you always hear, and whenever you hear it, it's the right time to hear it. And it's one of those records that when it stops, that when it's on, you sort of stop what you're doing and listen to it. And yeah. records like that don't come around. Now, what's interesting is that uh, Tribe Called Quest came to Lou Reed to use a sample of Walk on the Wild Side, you know, thinking, uh, we're going to talk to Lou Reed. And it's like, what are you going to do to it? Cool. All right. Have a good time. Yeah, it was yeah, like, it, I mean, it was like, Q-Tip had said, you know, it was like the most uneventful experience trying to get a sample from him, you know? And if you read, they said he was very personal and jovial. Now, I never met Lou Reed, but I did see him carrying groceries in the village, and it was utterly fascinating just watching him get out of the car with a bag of groceries and walk like a half block because there was some sort of weird mystique about Lou Reed that you just sort of always paid attention, um, which not a lot of artists do. And he sort of, he came along at at a perfect time as well. And he sort of never went away, which really helps. I mean, he didn't make a whole lot of amazingly perfect records in the eighties and nineties, but he made a lot of interesting ones. And you, you can even look at the Lulu record with Metallica as yeah, it ended up being a really horrible experience for for you know for all those involved, but it was an interesting gamble and an interesting try, and it was an interesting sort of like, hey, I've got these abstract German plays, I want to set the music. I mean, it, it's sort of a lesson to anyone that you can do what you want to do in the music world, you know. And I've said it before, I say it again. I would love, love, love to have been a fly on the wall on a Sunday morning at Lou Reed's house with him and Lori Anderson come to the table and open up the newspaper and have breakfast. I bet that was fucking weird. I seem to recall one of the last things that Lou Reed wrote to your point about hip hop was, uh, he wrote an album review of, uh, uh, of the, uh, the Kanye record. Yeah. Jesus. Um, and this is, and there is this really great website and I forget the name of it. I'm really sorry, guys. Um, but, uh, it is a website where they get other, they get, uh, famous musicians or famous people to review other musicians records. Yeah. And I forget the name of it. You can send it to me in the comments. I'm really sorry. But, uh, one of the last things that I remember, uh, that Lou Reed had written was this, uh, really interesting review 
of uh, Yeezus, where he kind of compared it to metal machine music, saying, this kind of sounds like he's doing this for the same reason I did that. Just to see what'll stick and what'll what'll sound great. I don't think he's caring about the audience at this point. But it was great yeah. to see the analysis of um, comparing Metal Machine music to Yeezus and and how that all kind of went into his review of it. That very interesting stuff. Well, uh, uh, it looks like I was just googling that. It looks like the Talk House. Talk Maybe House, the, okay. Yeah, the site that does that. Um, I I think what what I would say is that he. Like like with Lulu and and some other things that may not have worked so well, he he made he made mistakes of ambition and not of sloth, you know, which I think is one of the best things that you can say about somebody. I mean, I I would much rather watch somebody try something and have it not work out the way they wanted than just go nah. I think I'll stay over here and play it safe. I don't know that he played anything ever safe, you know. Um, yeah. And talking to uh, when I was looking stuff up. Uh, to you know, just get more because I'm I you know I'm 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 not as huge into Velvet Underground and Lou Reed, so I was trying to you know dig around. This is what I thought was fascinating, talking about the um, uh, getting the sample, uh, the Susan Boyle thing. Say, say what you want about Susan Boyle, um, she was going to do Perfect Day on America's Got Talent apparently, and at the last minute was told Lou Reed said no, you can't. And so she just had to cancel her performance because they didn't have time to rehearse anything else. Tur- they came back later, and Lou Reed's representative said he had nothing to do with it. It was just a licensing problem. So he then turned around. Oh, and by the way, not only can you not perform it, but you can't do it on your album. And then Lou Reed came, turned around and said, no, not only can you do, do it on your album, I'll produce your video for it. It's like, wow. <laughs> that, that's... That's a guy right there. You know what I mean? That's that's impressive. Yeah. So uh, so I, I I like that. I like stuff like that. And I, and I like that you could find him in weird places. Like you know, uh, before he did that Raven album, uh, he you know was on. Uh, uh, I I believe he was one of the readers on um, uh, Closed on Account of Rabies. Um, yeah. So you know, big Poe fan, which of course means that he has excellent taste just out of the starting gate. Um, but, uh, but no, I, that, that I think is, um, uh, I, I find him fascinating in that he did all of these different things. He did have his fingers in all these different pies and uh, didn't ever seem complacent to stick with one thing. You know, he was always trying to push the envelope and he just didn't care. He didn't seem to anyway. Yeah. If you get a chance to read the Lori Anderson article on Lou Reed that she wrote in Rolling Stone, do so because she talked about Lou Reed met her, and they hung out, and then he called her and said, hey, there's some, like, basically uh, equipment show, like amps and speakers and everything they go to, and that he invited her to go along, and basically their first date was looking at different amps at this, like, conference, uh, nice. like, like sound and music conference. And then apparently when they decided to get married, it was just like, let's get married today. And they just went up to Washington State or, or Oregon or someplace where they knew somebody and just got married, and that's how it happened. Nice. You know, yeah, so, it's a really – the Lori Anderson article is really, really nice and sweet. And um, I believe uh, there is a uh, re-released version of uh, White Light, White Heat uh, that has some uh, bonus stuff on it that just came out. I think it's like two discs or a whole extra disc on it and stuff like that. 
there's like but, multiple I mean, versions of it, yeah. Yeah, the masterpiece is Velvet Underground and Nico, which yeah, um, yeah. I think I think that's the most accessible of the Velvet Underground stuff. Um, you know, some of the other stuff near the end, it's it's kind of like you know, you're either you're either in it or you're not. But that record is pretty amazing. Um, you know, and it, it's really funny because he lived with a transvestite for years. Everyone had all these assumptions about him, and he always sort of would juggle us like, look, just because I live with a transvestite doesn't mean you know. I do all this weird stuff too. I mean, I'm kind of a regular guy, and that was—I thought that was like hilariously funny when he would, you know, talk about that. He's like, "Well, just because you know, I do this and this doesn't mean I have to do this and this." And I always kind of thought that was interesting. So, but he, besides being an interesting musician, he read a lot. He was really into a lot of different types of art. Um, apparently, Laurie Anderson always said that you know, New York is a city of scenes. And that she's like, I just never ran into him because our circle of where we hung out never sort of interwove. And I always thought that was kind of an interesting thing to think about, too, is that, you know, there's all these different, there's a literary scene, there's a music scene, there's this music scene. And the, the fact that those two lived in New York in the village for so long and never met till as late in life as they did, I thought was just fascinating. Okay, so uh, roll, moving along here, uh, we're going to move to uh, one half of probably one of the most influential acts of the rock and roll era, uh, the Everly, Everly Brothers. Uh, Phil Everly passed uh, on January third, and uh, one of the things uh, one of the things that struck me, in addition to sort of the use of harmony and the guitars, um, I also thought the songwriting style was very interesting. Um, very intricate, almost, almost kind of the first, the first kind of goth stuff, because a lot of it was really, really dark. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, kind of the darker edged influence, and these guys did not look like these guys looked like you know the kids you went to high school with, like the kids next door. So guys like who who looked normal, who looked absolutely normal, singing these really dark songs, uh, I just thought was awesome. Yeah, even if you take something like All I Have to Do is Dream. Yeah. And you listen to that, that's kind of creepy. It is. It is. They sort of invented the kind of quasi-stalkery song lyric. They kind of perfected it, you know? <laughs> this, this idea of, no, this idea, I mean, at the time, it sounded like, you know, they they masked it, sort of. It's like this, you listen to it, they're like, oh, they're like the monkeys or something. But it actually, these songs about wanting and needing and desire and obsession and sort of mask them really well. But I mean, the lyrics have a certain darkness and a certain edge to them. It was but very dark, they, but it was universal as well. Yeah. But it also was very sort of humanist in that it, it, everyone could relate to their lyrics, but their melodies were also such an interesting yeah. counterbalance for that, that you can't really help but enjoy them. You know, I mean, Everyone from R.E.M. to The Replacements, you know, you can count as people that were influenced by the Everly Brothers. Oh, um, even, even, even further back than that, like the Beatles and Dylan and everybody, yes. literally yes. everybody. <laughs> well, and, and what's interesting is, is that um, you, you really, I, I really clued into that whole darkness thing um, when I got a hold of the uh, Chain to a Memory box set, which was like like eight CDs or something crazy of like, yeah. I think it's like 66 to 72 or something like that. 
And so you got a bunch of it at once where beyond just the, um, um, you know, stuff like uh, Kathy's clown and, and, and bye bye love and stuff like that, you, which, which, yeah, if you delve into, there's a bit of darkness, but there was, there was a lot more stuff in the deep tracks where you just go, Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, honestly, I, I had never clued into that until, uh, delving, uh, it, it, through that box set, but it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it, it, you're right. I mean, it, it, it is completely, it takes you completely by surprise. They're like the embodiment of any song that you hear on the radio that sounds all happy and peppy. But when you listen to the lyrics, you go, shit. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, songs like uh, Pumped Up Kicks would not be popular or are relatable if it wasn't for the Everly Brothers. Yeah. Or even like the entire Smiths catalog. Yeah. It's just, wow. Yeah, which which you know on the on the again, if you only know them for what they're most popular for, and you haven't delved, trying to figure out Everly Brothers to the Smiths is a little weird. But once you dig a little bit, yes, yeah, it it makes the total guitar. sense. Yeah, well, yeah. it makes total sense. So, uh, but uh, yeah, that that's that's the thing for me is when when you when you look back again, it's one of those things where. With with Lou Reed, Lou Reed was everywhere and doing all this other stuff, so it's more obvious of the influence. But then when you, uh, you know, when you look at someone like Phil Everly, it's only when you start digging into it that you go, "Well, this is this is more than just two guys with the guitars harmonizing," um, which is which is sadly what yeah. I thought it was for the longest time because you know there's it's uh, they were they were in that r a range of music that I grew up with. Um, you know, 60s, 70s music, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, that, that was my focus for the longest time. Um, and I, you know, I, I guess if I had gotten, uh, you know, more than the greatest hits of them, I might have turned out even darker than I am. <laughs> well, the interesting, too, is that the interesting thing, too, about them is that they sort of, their timing was off because there were so many other people around when they were that sort of spilled the thunder, sort of, that the stuff that the labels released and the stuff that got played on the radio was sort of the, the poppy, instantly relatable kind of stuff. And that their contemporaries got it. And people that were sort of more in an underground thing got it. But literally, their, their timing, they came around when so many other musical people were happening that I don't necessarily think they got their due at the time. You know? But it's sort of like everybody who plays around that scene or grew up, grew up with a passion for music, knows how relevant they are. But the average casual person will kind of instantly dismiss them, sort of. And their timing, I think, was the big thing that kept them from being, like, exploding into a huge, huge thing. Well, well um, part of it was, didn't, weren't they, uh, weren't they, like, uh, did they just get completely mowed under when, like, the Beatles showed up and stuff? Because... Yes. The Beatles was the yeah. Beatles was like them, but more so. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, guitars, harmony, and you know, slight slight darkness. If you dig. Yeah. Yeah. You get the Beatles, they start to come out of the cave, and then the Beach Boys hit. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The know. Beatles, Beach Boys, Stones, Kings, Monkeys, all of them yeah. basically. Yeah. Which is not detracting from them at all, but uh, when you get to a period like that, not everybody's in. You know what I'm saying? It's kind yeah. Of Basically, the British kind of invasion bad. flushed them out. 
But all the British invasion people totally loved but it. But all the yeah, they all the British have, invasion people were totally into it. And you know, it's 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 kind of like you know, this is to equate it in high fidelity terms. This is what you should be listening to, not what you're listening to. That's kind of where they were. You know, it's for, it's for interesting. It's interesting. I'm I'm curious because we're going to talk about uh, you know, what we've learned from the year previous, but um. I was just wondering, since they basically got plowed under the wake of all these other bands coming through, I wonder if the same situation had been around today with much more choices and much more exposure to any sort of music you wanted, I wonder if they'd have been able to stay afloat better uh, or if the same thing would have happened. I think so. I mean, part of the reason that their box sets and things sort of had this renaissance in the 90s was that, you know, Kurt Cobain name-checked them. I mean... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that would make. Well, you know, also they did that. They did that. Uh, they did that. They opened for the uh, Simon and Garfunkel reunion tour. The last one. <laughs> which, which is, which is the here, here's, here's a pair of duos that at one point you thought would kill each other rather than be on stage again. Yeah. So yeah, they, they, they opened. The funny story is they opened. Paul Simon had asked them to open on the uh, on the Simon and Garfunkel tour, and they showed up. They did their gig. They were great on stage. When it was over, they went their separate ways. <laughs> you know, you know, the only thing you could have done an entire festival. You could have had you could have had uh, them and Simon and Garfunkel, and then oh, here's the Kinks as well. And the Kinks and the Oasis <laughs> and Jesus and Mary King. It's the Family Matters tour. <laughs> I think and that's, I, and somebody that's needs other, to pitch that. And, and that's the other thing that struck me about the Everly Brothers, because, you know, we've all, we, we, coming up, we've heard about, you know, the Gallagher's and, and, and uh, Ray Davies and, and, and all of that. Um, but, but they were kind of the first kind of angry brothers in a band, you know, um, which, which kind of started the tradition, which I, I, I always found interesting. Yeah. They, you know, the word is that, you know, they would, fight like cats and dogs and scream and yell at each other and then the light the, the, the light would go on and they'd make like really pleasant sounding pop music and the lights would go off and they'd scream and yell at each other again. Yeah. Which I always thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> so yeah the uh the so basically the studio sessions, if they release the studio sessions of that would be amusing, is I think what you're saying. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing about Celebrity is that he really had a very deep understanding of writing, not necessarily lyrics, but just writing, because he's one of those one of those people. And I know we talked about the lyrics being dark, but I think part of that is he sort of walked this line between a person that's a storyteller and a person that's a lyricist. If that makes any sense, um, I, I think when he when when the writing process for him was sort of like deeper than just, a guy, oh, I'm going to write a song. I think it was much more personally intense and meaningful for him. Yeah. And I think that when he wrote his lyrics, that there's much more to them than what we just get on the paper. Yeah. And, and I think that is part of what made it, made it all work. And, and the other thing is that, you know, like a lot of the, uh, like a lot of the early, you know, rock guys, um, Everly came out of the, the, the sort of the country music Blues-ish yeah. songwriting tradition, whereas successive waves started to be less and less of that. But uh, you could really tell that, and in, in, in especially uh, in a lot of their stuff. 
Yeah. But just a phenomenal band. You know, if you've never heard, I mean, it's always sad that when when things like this happen, make you say, okay, go listen to an Everly Brothers record. You know, because you just think everyone's heard at least one. But no, I mean, the upside of when he died is that Facebook, everybody posted an Everly Brothers song. And there were ones I'm like, oh, I forgot about this. Oh, I forgot about that. And and some you listen to again with a whole new ear. I mean, the, that, that's the other nice thing about the Everly Brothers is that you can listen to them 10, 20 years later with a new ear, and you totally are in a different place than when you were the first time you heard them. So you get it a little more. Particularly like, the kind I of like resurgence it. they sort of had during the 70s, weirdly. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, moving along, uh, now we're going to talk about Ray Price. And uh, Rob, what can you tell us about Ray Price? Well, Ray Price sort of, again, continues this whole idea of what we were just talking about with Lou Reed and Phil Everly. Um, Ray Price was a country western singer, cut his teeth touring with Hank Williams, and sort of learned from Hank Williams, and took this, and after Hank Williams died, he sort of became the flag bearer for that particular sort of hard-edged brand of country music that we would know through Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings and people like that later. And he had, between 1956 and 1966, in 10 years, he had 23 top 10 hits. Um, his song, Please Release Me, he wrote Please Release Me, but it was made really, pretty much famous when Engelbert Humperdinck did a cover of it. So he's one of those people, when you hear this song, you'll hear him in an old jukebox somewhere, or you would have heard him on AM radio as a dial if you were younger, and it'll click, oh, that's him. Um, but he's, what's interesting about Ray Price is besides the fact that he was sort of the, uh, again, comes out of the, 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 the old school country tradition of Texas in the, in the 40s and 50s, really pretty much he had his, his formative years in the 50s and well, late 40s in, in a band and then 50s and 60s on his own. Um, that sort of honest, harsh, really sort of rough country music that uh, we don't really get much anymore. And then sort of, um, there was this interesting thing with country music where it did go to Nashville and he did get, you know, the Grand Ole Opry and all that, but Nashville got really pop for a while and it got really commercial and really sort of, it blew up in a very big way. Now, Ray Price was always an advocate of sort of like, that's fine for what it is, but that's not it. So that's not what I'm doing. That's not what sort of the roots of country music are. So think of him as like the punk rock version of, of country, where you've got country, you've got country music, it's flipped off, and then he's done sort of like a pop country. He is sort of the anti-hero for that particular movement. Sort of people like Hank Williams and, uh, as I said, Waylon Jennings, Merle Haggard, he wrote songs for Chris Christopherson, um, sort of an outlaw before there was an outlaw in, in the spirit of country music. And then he realized that the other thing that makes him extremely interesting is that he realized probably in the late 70s and early 80s, he's like, okay, I'm going to make my money as a songwriter. That's fine. He wrote a couple songs for other people. He made collaboration records with Willie Nelson and some other people to sort of cover bills and get his name back out there. But he was one of the first people to think, you know, there's some money in this. And he was one of the first people that opened up their own theater in Branson. Now, along with Andy Williams, the only other 
level of musician that really got it in, in the sense that, you know, some of this is like, I want to make a music theater and book the music I want and book artists that sort of have been forgotten. So he sort of had years and years of being a musician, and then all of a sudden an entrepreneur and a businessman that no one told him was going to work. No one said, you know, you open a theater in some big town is not going to work, and lo and behold, we have Branson now. So he was one of the first people that sort of bought into Branson and created it, which is kind of culturally frightening but important at the same time. But Ray Price sort of made – he's important because he sort of was influential for a lot of other people later. And it's one of those cases where the people that were influenced by him just took everything he did and magnified it and made it so much louder than what he did. And, you know, he served, he was, you know, he served in the military. He was, a, you know, the hard drinking country western kind of lifestyle that you would expect. And that's sort of why he's important in a nutshell. And that a lot of the sort of country that was made um, in the 40s and 50s and 60s somehow surrounded him. But then that sort of golden age country that you get in the late 60s and 70s, that sort of outlaw country, everyone from Christofferson, Jerry Reed, Johnny Cash, all of those people, that all happened directly because of him. So that's why he's kind of important and interesting. Plus, he had 23 hits in 10 years, which is kind yeah. of a big deal. At that time, that's not an easy thing to do. At a time when that form of music was not, it was fighting off rock and roll. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of influential. Okay, and so um, now, uh, now something completely different. Uh, Phil Chevron of the Pogues, who but whom we kind of also, but kind of also similar. Uh, yeah, in a way. Um, Phil Chevron died of neck cancer, which, oh my God, what a horrible, ghastly way to go. Um, in the, in the early eighties, 80, like 81 to 84, he was in uh, a punk band and, um, basically the, the an Irish punk band, the radio, um, the, basically the short term of it is the radiators, but, um, and not the radiators, radiators but I'm forgetting, I'm totally zoning out on it now, but. He was in a punk band, and they did really, really well out of the gate, and then he moved to London. And in 1981, he met Shane McGowan because they were both working in a restaurant, which kind of frightened me, and decided to start making music together. And that's kind of where we got the Pogues. And so, he was, one of, so was he one of the founding members? Him and well, no, he wasn't. But one of the one of the guys in the Pogues, uh, Jim yeah, Finer, okay. took uh, took a leave from the band briefly okay. because he he had um, some family issues he had to tend to, and Chevron joined and replaced him, and it worked so well that McGowan said, "You know what? I will just sing, and he will always just play guitar, and he's in." And that's kind of how that happened. That's kind of how he got into the Pogues. He sort of joined and did so well that he stayed even after, you know, he was basically going to be a replacement session player, but stuck around. So it's kind of like if Glenn Campbell had stayed with the Beach Boys. Yes. But the other interesting thing about Phil Chevron is that McGowan would let him write songs, which was interesting because he wrote a lot more folk songs. Hang hang on. Rob, Rob, we're we're losing you completely, dude. Hold on. How's that? Is that better? That's better. Hold on. We can't call you. We can't call you on the landline, can we? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, well, stand by. Let me do that. Uh, okay. 
Stand by. We drop that. So you want to go back and do the last two? No, no, no. I, I think we're okay with the first one. I mean, I if, okay. If, I think we're all right. Uh, let me. I think just the the most recent one. Oh, it's just Chevron. Okay. Yeah, just Chevron. It is busy. Get off the phone, Rob. There we go. Hey, sorry. Oh, it's okay. Hey. Uh, Battery's dying too, so that's part of it. Ah, there okay. you go. All right, yeah. we're go we're gonna. So, uh, Tuffley's gonna. Okay. Re Tuffley's gonna restart us on Chevron. Oh, so I have to sell that again? No, well, well, I, I tell you what, just pick up where you left off, and I can splice it. Okay, that's fine. Sorry. No, no worries. Okay, does that sound better there? Oh, yeah, much better. Go for it. Okay. So the interesting thing about Chevron is that he had this relationship with Shane McGowan that I don't think a lot of other people had, in that McGowan would let him write songs, which is kind of interesting. And like the folk song Thousands Are Sailing and Lorelei are probably the two most popular songs he wrote for them. But he sort of became the voice of of the Pogues in many ways, because Shane McGowan was not a big press person. So if there were Pogues po um, interviews, if there were, you know, eventually we got online, online forums, he would kind of be the mouthpiece of the band because he was just sort of known as being the most eloquent speaker of all those, of, of that group. And that is kind of his, his claim to fame is that, you know, a lot of people just sort of, tolerate <laughs> Shane McGowan, but he could creatively deal with them and sort of, you know, manage them. Now, when he was in the radio, when he was in a band called the radiators from space and he reformed, what's, what's interesting is he reformed that band later on with Cato Rorden, who used to be married to Sean, uh, Shane McGowan. And it had no effect whatsoever on his standing in the pokes, which, which I think is kind of interesting to the, it speaks sort of to the nature of their relationship. Um, but as a musician, sort of came out of the punk DIY attitude and sort of became a more refined guitarist person, kind of moved freely between sort of punk rock and that sort of, I don't know what you would call necessarily the pose, but sort of like punk whiskey music, I guess, kind of, and did it pretty freely. And it's really sad in that, you know, the Pogues have had probably several reunion tours uh, in the past decade, and he's always been, been on board with those. And whenever there was a concert, say, before that, that group of tours, when Shane McGowan was, let us just say, not at his, his best, <laughs> Chevron would be one of the people that could pick up the vocals and sort of run with it. So it was kind of great. If you've got a lead singer that's literally passed out on the ground, You've got a guy that knows all the songs that can just pick up the tempo. Uh, it's nice to have an understudy or a swing. Yeah, you know, <laughs> kind of like that. And sort of, he was kind of, in many ways, the thing that sort of kept Shane McGowan in check as much as you possibly can for the Pogues, but also a very interesting sh uh, songwriter and performer. I mean, he made his own record. He produced an album for Kirsty McCall. And... Um, you know, everyone from Billy Bragg to Johnny Marr sort of knew who he was and kind of worked with him. And 
sort of a very sort of kind of a session player probably, but sort of moved beyond that into, into his own thing and was kind of always a member of the Pogues, but probably very easily could have had his own sort of standalone career that was interesting. And it's a shame that he, that, that he died because the band was just sort of really beginning to get a lot of their commercial due. I mean, one of the things about the rise of bands like Mumford and Sons is now people are starting to see, oh, this stuff comes from farther back into, it's a popular watered-down version of what bands like the Pogues were doing. So it's kind of interesting. And he had a political voice and a sort of political attitude uh, coming from his Irish background that lended that band sort of its political edge as well. Because McGowan was very good at being a storyteller and painting a lot of these images. You know, you get things like Dirty Old Town, you get Rainy Night in Soho, and songs like that that aren't necessarily political. But then you get something like Thousands Are Sailing, which sort of pretty much consolidates the Irish-American immigrant experience in five minutes in, in song. And pretty much the outspoken sort of quasi-political person in that band not quite Lennon-McCartney, but an interesting sort of dynamic with McGowan as well. And that's kind of what makes it, makes it interesting. And if you've listened to a Pogues record and you hear the really interesting guitars, like there's uh, some, some of his guitar work in Fiesta, like that big guitar that you hear in Fiesta, for example, is his. And some of the guitar stuff that he puts in his songs to complement the rest of the band, it's, it's very unique and it's very... Um, it's personable, which as much as an instrument can be personable, it sort of just makes those records really work. So that is why it's kind of a bummer. And he was also very young, too. And the sad thing is that he had this this cancer, and he thought he beat it, and it was in remission, and then it came back. And that's part of why this, this story is just so sad, is that, you know, the band, too, when they would tour, they were sort of like, you know, they were very celebratory and, you know, get, in, in, in letting people know, hey, he beat this, and then it comes back, and it comes back with a vengeance, and it's just really sad. Okay, so uh, one of our favorite topics uh, has reared its head again, the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Guys, uh, guys, the uh, the inductees have been announced. I've missed this. Ah, yes. So uh, the inductees are uh, Nirvana, Kiss, Peter Gabriel as a solo artist, uh, Hall of Oates, Cat Stevens, and Linda Ronstadt, uh, will be in uh, will be the main index D's and the E Street Bandle is being given an award for musical excellence, and uh, Beatles manager uh, Brian Epstein and uh, Andrew Log Oldman, who was the the guy who was the original manager for the Stones, are, are going to get uh, non performer <coughs> awards. Uh, so, what do you guys think of the lineup? Well, it sure is interesting. I mean, you can't argue that it's not diverse. <laughs> No, I mean, you can't argue that it's not diverse. I mean, Nirvana, I think, is pretty much a shoe-in at this yeah, point. Uh, yeah, Nirvana, I think. Uh, because if they're going to start doing, if they're going to start doing later bands in the last 20 years, you have to pretty much start with them. Um, Although it does feel like we've skipped the 80s. Well, I can understand some of that. And oh, I, you yes. know, we can just talk to that. We can address that in a second. I mean, in a way, though, Hall & Oates were one of the biggest selling pop bands of the 80s. They really sort of rose to fame in the 80s, and they managed to take the soul of the 60s and the 70s that they loved and combine it with sort of like the pop of the 80s and make something from it. 
and there would not be a Chromio if there wasn't a Hall & Oates, for example. So you, I could argue that, okay, I'm, I'm fine with that. It's kind of, it's kind of I thought it's a little early, but I'll take that. And Kiss, you can't really argue, you know, there's few bands that are as, you don't necessarily have to say Kiss is influential, but I mean, they just were so loud and so vibrant and so out there in terms of just being visible in their time and to, and to this day that you almost cannot deny putting them in because they're still relevant. I mean, any also, band I now that has... Were, I think they were influential in terms of where they'd tour and just touring as a thing. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. if, if the band did anything innovative, it's in the area of touring. where they Touring just, and presentation. Touring and presentation where they would not only just tour everywhere, but bring the same presentation that they would put in big arenas into the smaller gigs. Uh, and, yeah. And the other interesting thing about Kiss is they always sort of had this notion that they always had to top themselves with the next tour, you know. So you've got Gene Simmons spitting blood, then he's spitting fire, and then the next show ramps it up. So the sort of the the stakes get higher every time they tour. So that they got they were one of the few bands at that time that got repeat business every tour. And this idea of sort of seeing a band every time they toured, um, Kiss was one of the people that sort of really established that as a traditional thing to do. Now, uh, now from a from a the business perspective, of course, they did all the the licensing stuff. Oh yeah. Um, now, now, were they surely they can't have been the first person to do licensing, but were were they the first band to do it to the extent that they did? Because maybe I think the Beatles so. had. Well, I will say maybe the Beatles had more. The Beatles or the Stones? Maybe. Yeah. I, well, I would say the Beatles because I don't. The Stones at the uh, the Stones kind of started to shy away from it. Whereas well, I, even just, where the Beatles were were doing Apple, they still sort of embraced their own marketing. I just because what's yeah. weird is I you know I've I've seen a lot of uh, strange Beatles you know vintage stuff. Oh, here's a necktie or whatever else. Yeah. But I don't know that I've ever seen, and sadly, might I add, I don't know that I've seen like a Beatles pinball machine. You know, I don't know that I've seen you know uh, to the extent that I have with Kiss. It's like. It, you you would you would have at a certain point run into something having to do with Kiss, uh, to an almost ridiculous extent, to it's, where they they almost got amused by saying you want to do Kiss scarves, fine. <laughs> it's interesting. Well, I, it's interesting because Gene and Paul, particularly Gene, had always said, you know, the only people we're trying to top is the Beatles. Yeah. So that was their whole marketing game. They they marketed everything with the thought to did the Beatles did it? Let's do more. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Little I, did they know that the Paul Lind Christmas special would not be more. The, the Paul okay. The Paul Lind Christmas special is Gonzo genius. All right. Yes, it's it is. Fantastic. Yes. I, and, I, but I, when you think I, about it, but that is that is an interesting, and I will I will use this as a linchpin actually, Wedge, to them sort of announcing their arrival because they pretty much went on that show. They couldn't get a real sort of regular, they couldn't get on any sort of regular prime time. Yeah, that was talk their show. TV debut. That was their yeah. debut. And they're like, okay, we can't get on the other thing. We're going to do this. And you know what? If you like nothing else in the Paul Lind Halloween special, you friggin' <laughs> notice kisses in it, right? Then they take uh... that, that sort of gets them commercial, that gets them a huge commercial pop for their time, right? And then you figure, 
they've got Kiss at the Amusement Park, the movie, as well, which at the time was a huge deal. I, I remember this, when I was a I kid. I means that shit gets released on Blu-ray. I mean, when I was a kid, it was a big deal oh my for my parents, for my for my brother and my sisters to sneak out of the house and go see the Kiss movie. It was a big deal. You know? I think you can find it on DVD, but not Blu-ray. I, I, I'm surprised that's not a Criterion, frankly. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, because you know, Criterion does weird shit every once in a while. Yeah. So you would think that would be a shoe-in. Um, I'm sort of amazed. But anyway, talk amongst yourselves. But you know, sort of. Kiss and Queen were the two big bands of that time that really sort of put their bread and butter in their live show and their visual presentation. And they made an awful lot of money off of it. And coming out of Detroit when they came out of Detroit sort of um, really made them. I kind of, you know, it's sort of, they had a blue collar thing about them that really sort of still, it still connects with people because they see them as like a band of dudes just rocking out. They, they've never lost, even when they took off the makeup, they were still viewed as sort of a rock and roll band. Well, Paul and, and, Gene, Paul and Gene were New York. Um, they were New York. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Paul and Gene, New York. I think they were all New Yorkers. I think actually. Yeah, they might be. I might be wrong on that. Yeah. Well, I, I just like to point out that um, more proof that there is no God Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, currently out of print. Paul Lynn's uh, Christmas special, or a Halloween special, uh, in print. What the <laughs> hell? <laughs> Folks, there's no uh, God, all right? But they, it was like they, they knew instinctively when to pick their shots, you know, and make it work. I mean, I have a friend who saw them open for Bob Seger, and then a couple months later, he saw them play the Missouri State Fair. You know, so they were, you are completely right in that they would take advantage of every time they could get a big audience and make it work, you know. And you think about it, it's like Kiss was going to play a state fair. And people forget, you know, Bob Seeger pretty much got them an opening spot on his tour and yeah. gave them as much time as he wanted, as, as they wanted. And that's another thing that sort of got them going. And and, and they returned the favor to, to like a lot of bands uh, in, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, uh, particularly mostly hair metal bands. Let's be honest, but still. Well, Motley Crue. I mean, didn't Motley Crue? Crue, uh, yeah. Crue opened for Kiss. Uh, they also opened for Ozzy. So it was, it okay. was, it was, it was, it was that, and uh, it was, it was Kiss and Ozzy that were very, that were very good at spotting new bands and sticking them in front of as their openers. But yeah, I can't really argue with Kiss being in there. I am very happy. <laughs> To see Peter Gabriel get in, yeah, outside yeah. of Genesis, yeah, um, because I think that he's in it not just as a musician, but also someone who owns a record label, but also someone who changed the idea of the music video, but also somebody that sort of has still done lots of envelope pushing, and those types of sort of multifaceted people are not haven't really traditionally been getting in to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I think that him getting in is going to open some doors because he's, his career is so varied and interesting. And the other thing about Gabriel as well is that his, as, as much as you have so and some of the pop records, his soundtrack stuff and his sort of lesser rock stuff is farly, or farly, greatly underappreciated. And I think that this nod sort of recognizes things like Last Temptation of Christ that he did and other things 
that are equally as interesting to his fans, but the mainstream may not know. So I think that's him getting is really important. Um, Linda Ronstadt, I'm, I'm happy as hell about her getting in, especially because she's sick. And as much as she may deny that she doesn't care about it, I think she probably does. You'd be nuts not to. And she's just such an important sort of person for her era not to put her in. So I can't really argue about anybody they're putting in um, this year. It's an interesting and broad batch of people to go in. Uh, but we'd be, if we had t- every year talked about the people they didn't put in, you know, we'd be here for hours. But this year they put in a lot of interesting and diverse people that uh, I, can, I can't really complain about any of it. I, 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 I do still have to say the glaring one is the replacement snub. I, I, I kind of have to go with that because it sort of feels like outside of, you know, Madonna and U2 and Prince that they are sort of skipping the 80s a bit to well, get I don't to, necessarily to, get to know. Like Nirvana. Well, the problem is, I mean, so much of what the replacements did Big Star did before, Alex Chilton did before, and those artists aren't even getting recognized yet. So you're not going to see the replacements get in until you see bands like the Pixies get in or the other contemporaries of their times. And I don't think that, you know, the replacements sort of wrote their own rules for so long and pissed off so many people for so long that it wasn't until, you know, really their their last two records that they really got any sort of commercial interest in them you know yeah they were always sort of beneath the surface and i think to a certain extent that's going to hurt them uh it's also the fact of you know you listen to nirvana there's a definitive nirvana record you say kiss there's a definitive kiss record there's not anything where the placements were uh, their entire career was solid and good but you can't point to one album and say it's their masterpiece and i think that is what they look for when they vote is did, did they make an album it was a masterpiece. If they didn't, do they have a large body of work that is commercially interesting or that just instantly rings off your head? Because the average music people, if you bring up all these other people, will think of something really quick off the top of their head about them. The replacements, though, you have to be in a certain place musically to really understand their relevance. And not everybody who votes for the Hall, I think, is like that. And I think that's what's holding them back. So my, my hope is that by them getting out and touring – and getting other people that are music critics and other people in bands to sort of champion them, then the groundswell happens. You know, here's what I'm thinking now, because remember when Madonna had uh, Iggy and the Stooges perform some of her songs for, uh, for, the, yeah. for the Rock Hall induction? I think if Linda Rodstadt puts the uh, replacements in charge of uh, per- doing her performances, um, I think that, that'd work. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind it. You know, I think, I mean, I think it's, they're they're so on the fence. I just don't know how it's going to go. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of weird. Think about it, Linda. It's a good idea. <laughs> but I can't okay. for the life of me think who didn't get in that was eligible. That's what I don't have off the top of my head. Yeah, and and I'd just like to to say I was I I know we've gone over this multiple times. And, oh, who is so and so in? And when have they got it? I I, I was sort of surprised that. We're just now getting Cat Stevens. Now I know part of that's probably due to the fact that he sort of, you know, disappeared for a while, um, and it was a little awkward. But still, I mean, he is Cat Stevens. I mean, come on. Well, there uh, was a point in time that he didn't want to be. He didn't want anyone to mention Cat Stevens in his presence. Well, that's true. But I mean, you could still have 
Uh, yeah. He, he, you still could have in, inducted him under his uh, yes, name. Yusuf Islam. Islam, yeah. yeah. But there was a long period of time where you couldn't even you couldn't even get him to talk about Cat Stevens at all. Like it was yeah. like a separate person. Mm. So that had to really wait for him to be able to go. Okay, I'm comfortable with this now. Eh, true so, enough. True enough. And to be fair, it probably took a certain amount of time politically to put a man who changed himself to a Muslim in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, it's sad, but contextually, that is a ball of that's a political hot hot potato they probably didn't want to have to deal with sadly sadly yes so who's eligible next year um i think we're going i i think what was it 80 was it 89 this year yeah i think so uh it's what is oh crap i can't it's 25 years after the release of your first major release is okay what gotcha. it is so i'm guessing what 89 was last year maybe 88 ish if you want to get technical on the nirvana thing Ah, uh, here we go. Uh, I I have found a I found a site that uh, that will take you what basically does it for the 25 years. So here's who's up uh, for 2014 ceremony 2015. I'm thinking uh, Nine Inch Nails. Well, uh, yes, Nine Inch Nails, um, Anna DeFranco, uh, Bare Naked Ladies. I'm just hitting the ones that uh, are well, you know, I don't want to say relevant, but you know what I mean. Um, Garth Brooks, hey, Green Day, um, Lenny Kravitz, Lush, Manic Street Preachers, uh, Mother Love Bone, huh, okay, um. They're going to wait for Pearl Jam on that one. Yep, definitely. You're, you're two years out from Pearl Jam, that'll happen. Uh, was it two years, really? Uh, 91 yeah. was 10. No, yeah, you're absolutely right, 2016. Uh, okay, so keep going, Orb, Pavement. Uh, Queen Latifah, Sarah McLaughlin, uh, with her sad dogs. Um, uh, oh, Skid Row. There you go. Um, uh, I'm I'm kidding. Tom Petty. Uh, and as a solo artist, yeah. Yeah. Although technically, isn't Tom Petty in as a solo artist, or was that with the Heartbreakers? Uh, I thought he was already in there. Uh, I think he's already in. He's already in. Because technically, even the thing with the Heartbreakers is still him as a solo artist. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I never know. Uh, and then for uh, Shits and Giggles, uh, 2015, you have uh, Tribe Called Quest, Alice in Chains, Bella Fleck. Nice. Uh, Black Crows, Blues Traveler, Blur, Breeders. Um, oh, Cannibal Corpse. That's perfect. The shoe in. Um <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I, hey. I think I'll put yes in before Cannibal Corpse. Vote now, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. There you go. Andy DeFranco. It's kind of oblique. It's the, the, it tells me that they're waiting then to put in NWA and PE to the next couple of years when they don't well, have they anything. Put in, they put in Public Enemy this year. They did. Public Enemy was 2013. Hey, okay. 2015. Dread Zeppelin. There you go. Uh, yeah. Also, what? Whole Ice Cube, Jellyfish, which needs to reform. Can I say? Uh, Jesus Lizard, uh, Kid Rock, there you go, Mariah Carey, uh, Mark Lanigan, Mazzy Star, Monty Monty Boss Tones, Mo Moby, uh, oh, Orbital, Primus, Primus, nice, uh, St. Uh, Etienne, St. Etienne, am I saying that wrong? Yeah. Um, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Spiritualized, Teenage Fan Club, Therapy, 
uh, Uncle Tupelo, Vanilla Ice, yeah, Ween, and and Wilson Phillips. I Don't think, put Uncle Tupelo in. I think, so uh, I think they're, they're going to wait for uh, Wilson Phillips. They're going to put Cannibal Corpse in first, I think. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Well, I think, tough getting back to the replacements, I think seeing what happens with pavement will be very telling for what happens with the replacements. I think you would actually see the replacements in first. Listen, I, I think we're getting into the le- sort of, they're still sort of leaning into the 90s. So I yeah. think particularly on a year like, say, next year or maybe the next two years, uh, basically, like I said, we're two years from Pearl Jam. And then that's when the floodgates kind of open for the Seattle stuff after Nirvana. Um, so I think, you know, I, you know, maybe you get, maybe you start to get some of the 80s bands maybe we could see an opening for the cure and the replacements and maybe at least new order i won't say joy division because whatever um new order sold more records so that would be the criteria these days um may i could be wrong about that but maybe i don't know well, I mean, the, the other thing too is since the next couple of years are not as necessarily as robust as this year, they could. Yes. This is when they could be bringing in the grandfather in a lot of people. They should have, you know, there's an awful, an awful lot of blues and rock and country guys that haven't been in yet that they can put in. Yeah, and there's still and there's still the power pop bands from the '70s. I mean, Cheap Trick totally deserves to be there, you know, and 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 and. Uh, you know, big star and cheap trick and that lineage of band. Uh, they've kind of yeah. avoided that a bit. So, so that would be great to, to get that in there. But I, I think you're also looking at, you know, maybe that there's your shot for the cure and the replacements and uh, you know, maybe Husker do maybe I would say less of a chance for Husker do than the cure and the replacements. Um, yeah. But, uh, and, and possibly something like new order. And like I said, probably, I don't know how you would work New Order and Joy Division since essentially it's the same band except for one guy. But, um, you know, maybe a combined. Well, New how do you Order put the cure in, too? Yeah. Maybe a combined New Order Joy Division thing. Um, well, it's interesting with the Kiss thing because there are so many different members, how that's going to go. Um, well, it's like Blondie. They'll probably pick a lineup and say, this is the lineup that goes in. Yeah. Um, but I've seen a quote from Gene saying, you know, the current lineup is going to play, um, you know, that is Kiss now. So the current lineup, but if, but that they are entertaining the idea of, uh, of Ace and, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Ace and Peter Chris playing, playing at least a song with them, which is, which is, uh, yeah, which, which, and which is not, which is what Hart ended up doing last year, which I thought was really classy. Uh, which was, you know, the current version of the band played one song and then all of them played something or a couple of things, which I, which I thought was probably the best way to handle it if you have multiple lineups. Although I, I immediately, if yes ever gets in, um, they may have to go back to Barclays Center to do it because uh, I know that's where they are this year. Um, but that is probably the only place they could actually fit everyone who's ever been in yes. So... <laughs> That's my suggestion. If you if you ever do actually allow yes to get in, um, probably just go ahead and rebook Barclays now, uh, so that so that in eventuality of, of of yes, because there are a lot of people in that band. Um, okay, so uh, just a real quick jog through the uh, the legal briefs that we've gotten in the soundboard legal department. 
Uh, we'll start out with something, an item we mentioned uh, probably about two years back, I think, uh, was the uh, the Insane Clown Posse, our favorite, one of our favorite bands. Um, the FBI labeled their uh, labeled their uh, their fans affectionately titled Juggalos as a gang. Uh, and so uh, the band, uh, the, 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 the posse and uh, the NAACP are uh, jointly suing the FBI for, uh, for that lovely distinction. I just don't... on paper, it just sounds like, yeah. You know what? I read that and I, it sounds even weirder with you saying it out loud. I don't even know what to do with that, you know. I was trying to be polite about that. Um. Now, now I, I, I don't even know. I, 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 it's almost like, it's almost like I can see them suing the makers of the upcoming Eli Roth movie Clown for defamation. You know, I could see that. <laughs> that would actually make more sense. Here's the thing, and this is going to be an over a stupid generalization, but my, my immediate response to this when I read this story is, have you met any ICP fans? But <laughs> that is unfair to most, the majority of ICP fans, but really, it is a cheap joke. But, um, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's, really, it's really weird um, that, that, that this case exists. Um, that that a that the federal government would label any you know extreme followers of van. Why haven't we gone after like the One Direction fans? That's my thing. Why why haven't we done that? They're violent. Have you seen them in the malls? No, really? no. Are they violent or do they incite violence by their existence? I think both. Okay. That would be. I would have to acknowledge their existence. <laughs> So yeah, there's that. Um, <laughs> um, let's see uh, something else here. Uh, rap Genius, uh, the um, the uh, website that uh, publishes rap lyrics. It's a searchable database of rap lyrics. Um, it's kind of taken a bunch of legal hits actually uh, lately. It was mentioned in a report uh, that was co-authored by uh, uh, our 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 friend uh, David Lowry. Um, and uh, the at the University of Georgia, and once that was published, uh, several labels started to file suit against the website for uh, unauthorized posting of the lyrics. Uh, and then something interesting happened. Uh, Google removed them from their search results uh, for, um, I guess, shady sort of SEO practices. Widge, do you want to kind of explain? Yeah, I mean, basically, from from what I could tell, they were. Uh... One of the things that Google frowns on is paying for links of any type or form or fashion. Um, in fact, if you um, uh, if you link to something that you're that that could be bought, um, you, they want you to put like a no follow tag on it, which means that no Google love link juice flows to it. Um, but what they were trying to do, from what I can tell, is sending out a blanket bunch of emails and saying. Hey, you know, if you link back to our lyrics, you could get uh, you could get coin, which um, apparently they were very indiscriminate about sending out. Um, they didn't have a really good setup for what it was supposed to be about. And Google hates that stuff because Google's idea <laughs> is, you know, apart from 
I mean, if anyone's going to read your, you know, if anyone's going to do like shady advertising, it's going to be Google as far as Google's concerned. Google uh, wants to own the shady advertising market. You got it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean, to, to one of the things that they do that's still not evil is they want uh, links to be organic so that their uh, search results are as organic as possible, i.e. not gamed. Um, and so, so it they seemed like they were gaming it. So were they? Did they at one point were they technically labeling Rap Genius as a content farm or something like that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of the same. I don't think it got far enough to be that. It, there there was a problem with that a couple years back, where um, you know, you you were creating content just to farm links and then run ads and then run AdSense and get stuff like that. I don't think it got that far because uh, it got exposed by this guy sharing the crazy email he got uh and the rap genius people went oh yeah that was dumb sorry now to their credit they went yeah i don't know what we were smoking that was dumb um which is you know if if only more people admitted things they did that were dumb uh so yeah so basically uh once uh, they fixed their issue google restored their search results i think is the the deal with that yeah, they they uh they did some apologies. They got some people who had put up links to take them down, and they went to Google and said, "We're terribly sorry. Uh, uh, we won't do it again." Uh, and and that is that is something that websites of all sizes are afraid of is doing something dumb that gets Google uh to hate you, um because you know, yay Bing and y you know whatever search engine you want to use, but Google. I mean that's it. G Google's like thermos. It's like Oh, can you name another another type of product that's not made by thermos that's a thermos? No, because they're thermoses. So that's like Google <laughs> is like that with search. Um, as far as the actual source of the litigation concerning the lyrics, um, I believe they've signed a deal with Sony uh, to cover their publishing. Um, and apparently there are other publishing deals on the way, but there may still be some other litigation with Rap Genius to come. So we'll see. Well, and, and very briefly, uh, I, I, apparently they had just done gotten a bunch of investment in. Yeah. So they they were starting to go. Uh, they were starting to make make serious money off of publishing lyrics because, as you know, there are fifteen thousand lyric sites oh, yeah. online, and I, I think it's I think they basically crossed the threshold of all right now, you know. So uh, it, it's it, not just some guy collecting these lyrics and posting no. them up on a on a page. It's no. They were getting angel funding. So that's yeah. when you start to do that, then you've crossed the line from personal self use to making a personal use argument to Yeah. Yeah. You're 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 a business. Um, um finally in our cause we you know, we can't go six months without mentioning Courtney Love and the fact that we did a Nirvana piece and didn't, um, I'm sort of proud of. Um, so Courtney, uh she's suing one of her lawyers. Or one of her lawyers is suing her for uh, defamation. Former lawyers, yeah, yeah. Former lawyers suing her for defamation for a uh, tweet. That, for a tweet. Um, Bitch. Which one? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> I've lost count. Is it Courtney's lawyers or Courtney or just the whole? Or is it just a blanket bitching? Is that what you're doing? Um, well, I, I I think that she is kind. I mean. I don't. I think it's a case of like you're Courtney Love. You are notorious for putting your foot in your mouth. This is one of those times when you just shut up and take care of this shit in a different way. 
And because, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not really sure which lawyer this covered and which era of Courtney this covered. I don't was even this, know. Was this the thing yeah. about when Courtney sued over uh, Kurt do, being able to do anyone's song in uh, Guitar Hero? Or, 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 I think it was another one. I think okay. it was another one. I'm not sure which one, but I don't. I read the article. I don't recall it. I think it would have specifically said that. Because I was um, always, I was always partial to that piece of Courtney litigation. Um, you know, having different errors of having your different favorite errors of Courtney Love litigation. Uh, so well, instead I, of instead of actual, you know, music Courtney's ever put out, I love a certain period of her uh, litigation. So and and, and I. Uh, uh, that that'll be the new Tuffley's new site called Litigation Genius. Litigation where can, Genius. Where you yeah. can go in and annotate uh, the various uh, lawsuits that people come up with. Um, no, I, I I I think I remember in the article it's saying that this was the first time that a tweet defamation lawsuit has actually gone to court. There have been others, but this is the first one. And uh, you know, I'm 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 kind of wondering at what point does how threatening is 140 characters, you know? Maybe it's just me. Yeah. It, you know, I don't know. It, it's weird. So, so it we'll, seems we'll, a whole lot of nonsense to me, but that's just me. So, so we'll have to see how that works itself out. Get, get, good luck, Courtney? <laughs> Place your bets. Place your bets. Place your bets. <laughs> Okay, so uh, because it is, as I said at the beginning of the show, the very first show of a new year, 2014, we have to oblige ourselves to figure out what the hell we learned from the previous year. So this is what that is. Our, it's, it's totally exciting. We'll, we'll try to work on that. So a few stats for 2013, uh, first off, because I went to the trouble of looking them up, so you're going to get them now. Uh, so the top selling albums of last year um, was the uh, Justin Timberlake 2020 experience, the first one, not the not the second one, because there were two of them. Um, Eminem, uh, Luke Bryan, and Imagine Dragons uh, finished up the top five. Um, the uh, the top selling uh, single of the year was Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines, uh, once again reminding the planet that domestically we have a shitty taste in music. Uh, also shitty and creepy stalkery sort of way. Um, uh, the top selling vinyl record of the year was Daft Punk, and then uh, and, and then uh, Vampire Weekend came in second. Um, U.S. physical sales and and uh, this is according to Billboard. U.S. physical sales were down eight percent. Digital was down six percent. But here's the catch: all of this is from SoundScan, so this doesn't count stuff like. People buying from Bandcamp. This doesn't count Kickstarter at all. Um, so, so what do we make? Is it, is it that it's? Are we going to the alternative forms, or is the sales actually dropping? Is it Spotify? What do we think? Uh, well, I, I'd like to just add to your list of uh, uh, of bestsellers that uh, I looked up to see where Adele's Twenty One fell after being number one for two I years. I was going to mention that. Go and ahead. It was number 21. <laughs> Although this is, I was going to mention because the, the previous, uh, the top selling record of the last two years was Adele. Yep. Uh, it's dropped off, as you mentioned, at number 21, which is perfect because we're expecting another Adele record. So <laughs> I think that pops up this year, uh, probably mid-year, maybe. But uh, so, so <clears throat> what... Well 
everyone else what you did in the two years without Adele, slackers. Um, well, here's the thing. I, I don't know where the stuff is going or what, what I would be interested to, to know, and I don't know how you know this, is from the because we're if we're just talking about SoundScan, SoundScan, which is physical sales, right? SoundScan is physical sales, and now, uh, as as Billboard goes, uh, SoundScan is physical sales, but as as part of Billboard's tabulations now, they are including digital in the sales, um, and then it gets kind of weird because um, coming in at number ten is the Jay Z record. Um, without all of those all the million copies he sold to samsung so if you add those back in he'd be up there with timberlake well because because here here's here's my question is that if you look at uh, i would be fascinated to know what was the total sales of uh for SoundScan year to year because then you could see okay uh, are they are they dropping off or are they just spreading out because as we as we have mentioned and continue to mention, there's so much out there that you can buy. Well, the audience is fragmenting. Well, yeah, yeah. So, so it's like, so, so is it? You know, if you have f five million sales and then five million sales, it's just you're you're spreading it thinner. Um, and and then then from there you go, okay. Well, what are what are the full sales that you can possibly track year to year? Including, yeah. like you said, Bandcamp and and uh, and and wherever else you can, and then you yeah. just see, okay, if it was if it went up and it went to digital, then it would be that. I, I I don't know that we have enough information to figure out what's going on, and more importantly, I think nobody who comments on it and says, oh, the music industry's dying, has enough information to comment on it. The difference is, we'll say that we don't, but they won't. <laughs> And I think well, I think it's... It's... Oh, go ahead, Rob. Go ahead. No, I was just say I think it's safe to say that parts of the record industry or the music industry that we are familiar with in traditional terms are dying. Oh yeah. And subsequently, it's skewing all of the different numbers because yeah. we've almost reached the point where sound scan is irrelevant. Yes, because you know physical sales is becoming less mm -hmm. of a thing. I think it's telling that <laughs> the year is kind of bookended by two very different types of internet-only sales. Um, you know, we had February, was it January or February, we had the uh, the My Bloody Valentine record that, that, that destroyed the internet for like three weeks um, that came out. And then at the end of the year, we had the very label-generated, backed, uh, iTunes-only release of the Beyonce record, um, which was for two weeks of its life was an internet only release. Uh, and it sold globally. I won't say domestically, but uh, domestically that's interesting because it ended up being number eight on the top 10 records of the year. And it was only out for two weeks of it. Um, and it was a lot of those guys probably got advances or they downloaded it or they might've gotten downloads or those, those to hear those, it longer than the. Yeah. But the two weeks, uh, the two weeks that are counted here are when it was an internet-only release. Yeah, which is inter which is also interesting, I find, uh, for that Beyonce number. Um, but you you you've kind of got a bookend between the the My Bloody Valentine sale, which I don't know. I, I don't think Kevin Shields has ever mentioned how many records he sold last year yet. But obviously, those aren't being tracked. Um, 
or at least by anyone outside of, you know, Kevin Shields and his accountants. Um, but, but I'd be interested to know how many copies, uh, of the, my bloody Valentine record went exclusively through my bloody Valentine. Uh, cause, cause we have a number on the Beyonce thing, but she's not getting all of that. Uh, which I would, I, I would find interesting in those, in the, in those numbers. Yeah. I just think it's fascinating that the delivery system has literally just changed so rapidly yeah. in so many different ways that, trying to sit in a room and gauge all this or even sit in a record label office or a marketing company office and figure out how you're going to track all this, I would just throw my arms up and, and give up. Because I, even though we do have record stores, I don't think you can sound scan those accurately anymore. And then you know now Target and Walmart are just as relevant as your local indie retailer for sound scan because people buy the CDs and they're so cheap there. And it's important that you mention that because uh, in the case of the Beyonce record, um, both Target and Amazon aren't carrying the CDs yeah. for the Beyonce record because it was an internet-only release. Um, so that's – although it is fair uh, – to be fair to Amazon, they are selling the digital version of the record, but they aren't selling the CD. So we'll point that out. Hmm. But um, – so, so that's kind of an interesting way to, to kind of bookend it, sort of to start the discussion there, because I think that sort of encapsulates, to one extent, the kind of divide between um, not just the fragmenting audience, but, you know, the, the, the way in which it's being consumed. And that seemed to be a big argument this year, yeah. uh, how music is being consumed. And you could look... You can look at a lot of different sources, but uh, the, the the Spotify squabble seemed to be sort of the biggest sort of realization of that, I think. Um, and I almost I almost wonder if the music industry is so stalled with trying to sort out rights with Spotify and SoundCloud and YouTube that their way of accurately counting what gets sold has suffered. I'm, I'm almost wondering if that's sort of what's going on. If that makes any sense. <clears throat> well, well, it's interesting because um, Spotify actually near the end of the year, and I don't know if any of you guys saw this, Spotify actually released a, a sort of a sub-site to musicians um, to explain their services, basically, how how rates were being calculated and how exactly, you know, how, how could you get your music listed and that sort of thing. Um, so I think near the end of the year, Spotify started putting out guides to, to, to bands and artists to basically say, okay, this is trying to attempting at least to put out something that looked more transparent. I don't know. That really didn't seem to help anything because then you had more and more and more people pop up, uh, not being huge fans of the service or uh, anything like that. Yeah. But I think it's it, it's it's two things. It's it's from a consumer standpoint. I mean, it's the hell of a good deal. Um, I don't think they've defined it on the other side yet how this actually pays um and, and i think that might be an issue that you know that that might you know have to get resolved eventually um i think the other thing is you really can't do this without music label involvement or cutting the music labels in and i think that's what kind of irks some of these people who own their own tapes at this point is why do you have to bring the labels into this well because not everyone owns their tapes but 
Um, I, I seem to a lot of the charges have a lot to do with the labels. Okay, the labels genuinely own a piece of this. Um, so yeah. that comes into play. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we have this sort of annual review of where record sales are going, and it it just seems that there's never any traction. You know, no one's throwing any kitty litter on the ground to get the wheels moving. It's just sort of we kind of seem to be at the same point where we were last year, if that makes any sense. Well, but I think it's like right. you said, it's, it's, it's that it's, it's fragmenting and fragmenting to the point where it, you don't know where to throw the kitty litter almost. I mean, yeah. you, you've, you've just now gotten the, gotten, uh, let's, let, let's look at it this way. I think that for the most part, um, people pirating through torrents, uh, major label releases, I would I would venture to say has probably gone down simply because they have ways of tracking that now and the serious people who want to pirate that stuff are finding other means okay so so and that is a problem from 4 or 5 years ago yeah yeah so so, so the, we can say that they're probably 5 years behind the curve on trying to figure out what the hell's going on so that's why you'll yeah. say okay Spotify and then 3 years from now they might sort that out you know, or, I, I think it's just moving too fast and they're too big and slow uh, to sort it. That's part of it. But I also think, too, that there are people that sort of know what's happening and where it's going. And they're deliberately taking baby steps to get as much money in the coffers as they can. I think sometimes they're deliberately cumbersome in order to slow that mechanism down because uh, it's a control issue. It always has been in the music industry a control between you know the, the labels and the distribution and the artists. Yeah. And I think right now the artists are winning um, to a certain extent, more so than in the past. And I think the labels are trying to find ways to get that back. And, you know, one of the things that's happening is that bands are going, okay, I'm not going to get as much from album sales, blah, blah, blah. But if I license the song to a commercial or to a, um, a TV show or whatever, I'll get more money up front. So I think you're seeing more music licensing for outside things other than, you know, public consumption through, you know, commercials or advertising or movie trailers, things like that. I think that's where more of the money is now. Well, because considering can, considering it seems like every show uh, has a tendency to have that montage moment with a song in it, um, which makes me want to punch kittens, then, yes, I would agree with you. You know. Um, and I, and I think artists sort of are getting smarter in that they're like, you know, if we get our song in a movie, we're going to get more money because we get a cut of the movie money rather than a cut of the music money. And to be fair, a lot of these companies have their hands full. You have, you have Time Warner, for example, which has a very large chunk of the music business, but also the music or the, uh, the film business and television. So they have to look across all these platforms and deal with all of these changes. So the way movies are made and distributed, the way TV shows are made and distributed, the way records are made and distributed is all changing. So they have three balls in the air that they have to figure out. If you're a, if you're a Sony, if you are Universal, or if you're a Warner Brothers. And I think that they're never going to get them all squared away with one unilateral system. But I think that because those companies are so large, that this is sort of the, the rubber band elastic going back and you know, hitting them in the face, so to speak, that they've 
they've gotten so big and so large that this is an unmanageable problem. So I think you said, you know, three to five year curve is a perfectly sound idea. Um, but it is not, it's not a problem that is exclusive to, you know, music. It's, it's a broader problem and how do you get it out? And yeah. so many of the platforms that are coming out are, are dual multiple use. So the same, the same app you want to use to download your favorite TV show, you could also download your favorite record and vice versa. Yeah, and I think that they, I think that they are so freaked out about that. And you look at what albums are selling and what things people are buying. It's the artists that have done a great job of exposing themselves across the board. I mean, say what you want about Molly Cyrus, but she's got her songs on the radio. She's gotten her her name on TV talk shows and chatter shows. She's gotten her videos on YouTube where there's a YouTube buzz, and when she does a live show or something live, she does something outrageous to create a buzz so that they're covering their, as many of these bases as they possibly can in order to generate as much money. And I think now you have to be almost a multimedia artist to do that. Well, I'd like to point out that in the case of Robin Thicke, it wasn't exactly him who exposed himself. He just hired models to do it. Yeah. I'd like to just say I'd like to not think about Robin Thicke. <laughs> I, I would like to second that emotion. <clears throat> yeah, you know, when he canceled yes. his show, when he when I found out he canceled his show here, I was so excited. <laughs> nice. Uh, it, it's he had to kind of bring down the budget of his of his tour he had to pay off uh, Marvin Gaye's family. Um, uh, hey, but, what's but going, going on? But going to this whole. <laughs> oh. But going to this whole, uh, but going to this whole um, conversation about uh, how music is consumed, we have to talk about the hype that went into records or the non-hype that went into records and their effects on the actual records themselves. Um, you know, we start again. It's we sort of started off the year with David Bowie's uh, announcing, "Oh yeah, I have a new album coming out. It's coming out in three weeks." Uh, and uh, My Bloody Valentine releasing their record, kind of just instantly. Um, yeah. And then we had, and then we kind of had this stuff with like the build up and the build up and the build up to the Daft Punk record, and you know, and then absolutely no build up. Beyonce has an album out, you know. Well, it's, I think in the case of, of to a certain extent with Bowie and My Bloody Valentine, is that while the Bowie record is 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 pretty great, a lot of major labels are going to pass on that because they just don't see how it's going to sell in today's record climate. It's the fancy yeah. jargon they use. So for them just to say, you know, they may have had a window where if they wanted to make money off of it contractually, they had to release it within a certain window. But that is a case of fine. If the mainstream way, traditional way of, re of putting out music is not going to work for me, then I reject it and do it my way. And there's certain people that can do that and get away with it. You know, Bowie is certainly one of them. And to a certain extent, My Bloody Valentine is to a lesser extent because they've been building such a hype for coming back. Yeah. But I don't think every artist could do that. I think that has to be an issue with timing, you know. And I think the Daft Punk record being so hyped was part of a reaction against sort of this buckling of tradition that a lot of artists, not just those two, did during the course of the year where they just, okay, fine, our record's going to come out digitally either instead of a physical release or way before a physical release. And that was the sort of, I mean, the Daft Punk thing is sort of almost a reaffirmation of the record label saying, we own this, we're doing it our way, 
this is going to be everywhere. We're controlling where it is. It's almost like it was a clampdown in how that record was marketed and promoted. But it, but it kind of yeah, no, it sounds weird. weird but yeah, it sounds weird in that. Okay, we just mentioned like the top five records, and I have I gave you guys a list of the top ten. Def Punk's not up there. And it was like well, the most hyped record yeah. of the year, and it's nowhere near the top ten. Well, it's also what's called a niche record. I mean, if you look, if you were to pull the dance charts, though, it's on there. If you pull the alternative chart, it's you know, it, it, well, yes, it, again, it's more true, so than in the past. What chart do you look at? You know, yeah. I mean, that, I wouldn't like the list you sent out. I read this and go, wow. I have that, is none the top of selling, that is the top selling, the 10 top selling records of the year. Yeah. And the interesting thing is none of, and I'm looking at this, I think maybe the only one that got, a, the only two that got, that got even close to Daft Punk's level of hype was the Timberlake record and the Jay-Z record. Yeah. Um, and, and most of that, the Jay-Z record was based on, it was being given away from Samsung. Um, but you know, Daft Punk had this incredibly huge level of hype, and yeah. it didn't necessarily translate to sales of the record. Now, it did translate to Get Lucky being everywhere. Um, yeah. And I but think part it of didn't the problem translate of... to the album. Anything with It yeah. didn't generate any traction for the album. Well, part of the problem with that is a lot of these other records have their big hit record that they release, and then they've got a follow-up. Yeah. The Daft Punk, either the label or them or whoever, chose. They didn't really pick a second. There wasn't like, there wasn't a Billy Jean after Beat It or a Beat It after Billy Jean, so to speak. There wasn't another thing to follow on the heels of it. And part of that is, I think that you know, Get Lucky exploded and it did really well. And then after a while, some of the adult contemporary stations got on it, and then they waited because it sort of to permeate. It sort of started off blanketing with a huge cross culture of people yeah. and then sort of filtered backwards into the, into the normal sort of listener ear. Well, I and think that, what was it doing? It that right took so much time single? to germinate yeah. that it hurt the record that, that which I'm hoping makes some sort of sense, but yeah, but like do it right was the second single. And you would think the follow-up single would have been the other Pharrell, yeah. you know, uh, Pharrell track. Yeah. Would have been sort the, of the idea. Uh, the idea that of lose yourself to dance with it. Yeah. And that Lose Yourself to Dance would have been really the second single, but I think they, they pushed Doing It Right Out as the second one. Yeah. Well, and um, and I will say, uh, talking about hype, um, is there anyone who did not do a cover of Get Lucky at some point uh, over the course of the year? No, those were actually more interesting than the hype itself. Um, I, I, I know. I think, I think it, it, speaking of Susan Boyle, I think Susan Boyle's cover of Get Lucky is coming out Susan soon. Susan Boyle's of Get Lu yes. Lucky. Yeah, uh, I, would, I would want to hear that. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Postmodern Jukebox does a fantastic one. I mentioned <laughs> those guys earlier. Um, but uh, actually, my, my, my award to that has to go to Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. I, I think their version was, was, was way tops. I don't think I've, I've seen that. Yeah, they, while they were promoting World's End, some radio station asked them to do it as they do, morning radio show. Yeah. Asked them to do it. And uh, the, the footage is floating around somewhere where Nick Frost and Simon Pegg did get lucky. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I like the George Barnett cover as well as um, uh, Miracles of Modern Science, the, uh, yeah. uh, the, the basic string, I think, quartet, quintet. Yeah, yeah that was good yeah. as well. Um, but, you know, and the weird thing is, uh, going back to Daft Punk for a second, 
is that, you know, the other thing that I think may have part of the hype was that the part of the hype was that it didn't actually include them in it for well, yeah, the longest sort of, time. Yeah. And um, that I had this thing on the agenda called Daft Punk is not playing in anyone's house because they would keep showing up to things and not playing on them, which was freaking annoying. <laughs> it was just they are going they are going to play at the Grammys coming up supposedly they are going to play at the Grammys we're told but they kept showing up to things like Colbert's show the MTV Awards the MTV Europe Awards different television shows they kept showing up to talk shows and not playing they um, didn't tour they didn't tour um so so it was sort of like it was, it was a very odd thing because a lot of the hype of the record was uh, was surrounded by uh, you know Pharrell. Uh, what was it? Pharrell and uh, and, and, and and yeah, and Paul Williams. And they Which sort of strange. chose not to participate. It's kind of like we're going to put on a record. It's really great, but we're going to choose not to participate in yeah. doing any promotion at all. And, you know and. I know it's boisterous and presumptuous of them to think that this is their Sergeant Pepper, but come on, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, it must have been frustrating to work that record because they're like, oh, do you want to do this and this? No. Do you want to do this? No. I mean, it's kind of cool and ballsy, but it's also amazingly frustrating at the same time. Yeah, and, and again, going back to, well, if you look at their sales, the, the label's not going to do that again, at least not with them. I mean, and uh, honestly, if, you're, if that band's going to tour, this is the time because you're coming off yeah. not only that this record but the Tron soundtrack. They'll um, be they'll be secretly playing gigs with Outcast. That's what'll happen. Um, yeah, in your house. <laughs> in my house, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Um, so uh, enough of what I figured out in 2013, guys. What have you got? Rob. Oh, I was going to you go first. After um, you, sir. Uh, well, I will just say, and I'm speaking for once, like uh, like Sally Field out there screaming for everybody, <laughs> that I am very happy that 2013 is just completely gone. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because if you try to look for I, – I judge a year musically by can I find five songs of the year that resonate across the board with lots of different people. And I can't, it, it's, it's trickier to do that this year. And part of that is just there's so much. And I know they we were talked all about covers the end of the get year. lucky, Rob. That's why. Yeah, well, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, that the last three months of the year, I think I got more stuff to listen to that was insane. It was just, you know, and most of last year, I, the, and the latter part of last year, I spent just listening to the Cults record because it was perfect. But yeah. Or the National record, you know. Um, I think, though, we did sort of see this idea of the album to a certain extent come back because the National made a great record. The Arcade Fire made every effort to make this sort of concept album, and you have another album as, a, as an album uh, by Janelle Monet and Daft Punk and then Cults, and then even, to a certain extent, Sleigh Bells making a record, you know, that's a full listen-through record. My Bloody Valentine, that is definitely a contextual piece of music that is one album, not necessarily one track or whatever. So you sort of did see this notion of the album coming back, which I think is nice. Um, and vinyl sales were still strong. It just, I'm a little baffled by this 40 grain vinyl. You're paying $20 for an album. 
that I bought when it came out for six. That thing I don't get really. I mean, if I'm going to buy Sonic Youth Goo, I'm going to the copy I've got that I paid ten bucks for plays perfectly fine. How is the twenty nine ninety nine high grain vinyl one that different? I mean, I thought the speakers equalized all that. You know, I'm just lots of stuff like that was really sort of frustrating for me when it comes to like vinyl and records. But this is the year that vinyl got annoying for me. Um, I'm glad it's back. I'm glad kids are buying records, but now you've priced it to the point again where people can't buy it. So everyone's buying used records, and it's inflated the market. So 2013 for me is an interesting year, not just digitally, but also going back materially to vinyl and how it's being used and bought and the market is, both the secondary and the major market. Well, you know, with the vinyl market, it sort of reminds me about sort of the place that, you know, comics were in in like the mid 90s where everything had to be an event and everything had to be foil stamped and everything had to have multiple covers and a bag and a card in it. Um, And I'm afraid that's where it's going. Um, Yeah. Oh, I think it's already there. Yeah. I mean, I am thankful that when you buy an album now, they give you a digital thing to go with it nine out of ten times. That's nice. But the other thing. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and I mean, let's be fair. When it gets to the point where we're back to cassettes. I was just about to bring that up. When it gets to the point where, okay, we, we're, we're, we're shooting past vinyl again and going back to cassettes, that that seems troubling. That seems very well, troubling. because people love the idea of the mixtape culture. And I was going to kind of get back to this, is that there is, to a certain extent, a back wave ha- coming where – you know, people love the idea of Spotify. They love the idea of, you know, iTunes. But you can't physically make the mixtape that you hand to another person. And I think the people are starting to sort of want aesthetics again in certain circles where I would tell people, oh, I'm just going to burn you a Spotify playlist. I'll send it to you. And they're like, no, we want a physical either CD or cassette. I, I Like for the first time in 10 years, people are asking for cassettes. And I'm like, what is this? You know, um, no. <laughs> and none of them were rocks. So get that idea out of your head. But um, it, it, it's interesting in that sort of you have this duality of the industry fighting about moving forward with technology, but the consumer not letting go of old things. You know, I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that you can buy records, CDs, and digital music based on what you want. I think there's room for all of them. It, um, the but there's definitely wonder, a push going on. I'm the sorry? Thing, the thing that I wonder is, especially with not so much vinyl, because, you know, there's always been the argument about vinyl is the, the more pure audio experience, but you don't have that argument with cassettes at all. Um, so is it is it more kind of a romantic thing with cassettes? Is it? I think I think the I cassette totally is one is, it. A, one is a DIY thing, right? Two, it is still cheaper for a band to make a cassette than it is to make any other type of music. You know? Yeah. Uh, there are there are still some places you can buy a cassette tape for 99 cents, slap stuff on it, and sell the show. Your overhead is still higher, and you can sort of do more. And if you want to be really weird, you know, it, it, it it's like a fanzine. You could buy a music magazine or an art magazine, but if you buy a fanzine, it's more personalized and it's more low-tech, but it's more personable. It's kind of like those lines. Um, 
but it's just weird getting cassettes in the mail. It's just like, what the heck? At first, I'm like, okay, which person in Need Coffee is playing a trick on me? And then, no, this is actually a real press release. I mean, because literally within three days, I got like five cassettes. I'm just like, what the hell is going on? You know, which is fine. If that's how people want to go, it's great. It's not going to change the industry standard, but it's usually a lot of bands sort of trying to get attention. And, you know, if you're a band and you would put a cassette-only release and it gets on Pitchfork that it's a cassette-only release, I mean, eventually it'll find its way onto a digital format, but it's an interesting way for your band to get some notice that's outside the box and in certain circles, you know, it's like, oh, I'm at, look, you know, in hipster circles, ooh, they put on a cassette, you know. Um, so there is some of that. Um, the other thing about 2013 as well is you, you don't really see a lot of the big, I mean, a lot of the big tours. We've talked about the festivals, but the festivals are sort of proliferating touring now more than actual tours. Itself. Yeah, I think the only big, big stadium tour was Jay-Z and Timberlake, I think. Yeah, I mean, well, that was the big. No, I saw Madonna. I saw Madonna last year. So Madonna. Okay, so yes, you know, but, but, but uh, very Gaga, few. but people like that, people that, and Rolling that, that Stones, have like a, and yeah, yeah, and 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 I think Daft Punk could have been in that kind of a ballpark too, where the the event tours sort of yeah are the big thing now, and you know I think that there's sort of everyone's sort of trying to figure out what is the most efficient, leanest an effective way to get music out there without having to spend money. And I think that's sort of what I, what I thought was interesting this year. You know, you could stream bands at Lollapalooza and bands at Coachella online and watch them and not be there for the shows. You know, there's more exclusive content coming out on things. Um, But then conversely, less so here, but more so abroad, the remaster market is bigger than it ever was particularly in England where, you know, a lot of these sort of obscure fuzz guitar bands that I loved in the, in the mid and late eighties, all those albums I never could find are now all being reissued on CD and vinyl. And I'm like, wow, this is actually cool, but also kind of scary. So 2013 for me musically was kind of this like ADD music year where it's like, how am I supposed to digest music? Where am I supposed to find it? Where am I supposed to hear it? It's like you're literally your your senses are overloaded with trying to keep track of it. You know, you almost have to pick one or two music sites you like and have two or three friends around you who have pretty decent taste and just go that route and then everything else gets in by osmosis. Um or pick a radio station or something that you like to hear because there's so much of it you're not going to be able to listen to everything. And there's just, it is insane. I mean, it's almost, not that there's never such a thing as too much music being made, but literally the ability for anybody to make a record has exploded. To this end, um, electronic music and this concept of like bedroom music and bedroom production is just off the hook. Yeah. And, which is interesting. And I come from a, you know, coming from a DJ background and also being my age, I remember it's like, okay, a record would come out, there's a 12-inch, there may be, you know, a 12-inch single or two or three 12-inch singles with certain mixes, right? Now, you know, there's 15 to 20 mixes that the band will release, you know, in various ways, shapes, or form, digitally or, or physically or different platforms. And then all the underground remixes get released so that for one song, you could... And again, you can use Get Lucky as an example. You can go online and not only find 30 different versions of it by other bands, you can get like 100 
different covers or uh, remixes. remixes for it. And that remix culture thing has also exploded. And it's not necessarily sampling when we say remix culture. It's like creating and digitally splicing and doing all this stuff with records. It's and really... I, saw this, I noticed this a lot with the MIA record, where not only was she putting out mixtapes, but there are like thousands of remixes of the MIA record, some of which were out before the record was. Yeah. And the record got no legs because everyone got yeah. it digitally before it came out. Yeah. You know, um, now I am still, and this is where it gets interesting. I'm still one of these people that if I will get a download, downloadable link, for example, someone sent me the link this week for the new Glitch Bob record, right? Yeah. Which I'm extremely excited about listening to. And I will find a way when that is made available to buy it either on vinyl yeah. or a CD or even through iTunes because I want to support the artist, right? And you tend to get a little more for your buck. Even when they send out the promo stuff, you still get a little more through the iTunes or through something else. But, you know, it's it's just so interesting how things are coming down the pike now. It's, you know, I, I think Widge gets them too. You get, the, you get an email from a music company or a marketing company saying uh, this album will be released on, you know, like I got one for Elbow. The new Elbow album comes out on this date. Click here for a downloadable link and video. So the ability to get the record to the consumer is faster than it used to be. And they're not spending as much time sending stuff out because I got to tell you, it used to be where you would get 15 to 20 things of mail a day. That was all music. And for me, I'd much rather have it, you know, delivered to me digitally where I can disseminate when and how I want to listen to it than have all that physical stuff that I got to find space for. So that's an interesting thing. Uh, sort of the, outside of the consuming music, there's the storage music. Um, the conversation I'm having, which is sort of an interesting thing from 2013 to 2014, is how do I store my music? <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and, and it, is, it is the constant. And we've talked about this on Justice, where it's the, you know, even not just music with like DVDs or like comics. It's like, okay, now it's the battle for my shelf. That's what it is. Yes. And now it's a battle for. I have a finite amount of computer space. Yeah. How the hell is this going to happen? Yeah. And at some point I will frustrate the hell out of Widge because I'm going to say, I need 19,000 songs put here. How? You know? Um, it can be so done. It's interesting. <laughs> I know it can be done. It can be done. I know. I mean, but 19,000 is a ballpark figure. Um, so that, that end of it is interesting for, for me. The other thing I thought was interesting with, with, with 2013 is sort of like we're seeing a resurgence in what we kind of, at least for me, when you lived through the 80s and you had, you know, when Madonna first burst out of the scene and then you had Cindy Lauper and you had all these people sort of making outrageous things when they, when they came on the scene to sort of announce that they were a pop star. That's kind of coming back. Yes. This whole like Molly Cyrus phenomena. I mean, Katy Perry puts out a record. It's out. It's there. People buy it. But now more and more with, with Gaga and Miley Cyrus and more and more of these artists, they're doing like just weird sort of shit to announce that they're there that they don't have to do. And that is sort of, to me, cluttering the, the signal. Um, and I think that's interesting as well. And um, yeah. And on top of all that, the rise of pirate radio. Those are all the things that 2013 – for me, as a music consumer, pops into my head. Sorry, I didn't mean to take so long. Nah, it's all right. Widge, what you got? 
Uh, well, I would say uh, definitely on Sorry. the ADD side of things, because um, it's just, there's just so much to consume uh, or to even sample. Um, that you're still all... working on 2012. No, no, I'm done with 2012. <laughs> I finished 2012 just in time. But part of Be what fair, I he's got an empire to run. But but what what uh, what I found interesting though is that it's like, you know, I'm 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 constantly trying to find new and interesting stuff and it's like oh you're 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 a uh uh you're a zydeco band in estonia yes yes i want to hear what you're doing i i, I you know please tell me about oh you're you're, <coughs> you're you're a uh you're a ska band in brazil fantastic please send me what you've got um so i the, the ability first of all there's a lot more stuff and then there's more stuff than you even know that there's stuff because yeah. the farther the farther you cast your net, the more stuff you will find, which I found fascinating. And and here's the thing. Here's the thing. Some of it's really good. <laughs> a, a lot some of it's really... a, a lot of it's not. A lot of it's just okay. But some of it's really surprisingly good. Um. So that that to me was 2013 was about expanding, uh, my sort of vista for looking at stuff. And trying to find a sane way in which to consume uh, and and find as much music as I wanted to consume, um, which is a lot because I'm addicted. Uh, <clears throat> so so there is that. Um, and and for me, it was more like a a focus on, you know, looking at Bandcamp, looking at SoundCloud, looking at um, uh, Spotify, so I could find the stuff that I then wanted to turn around and purchase. You know. Yeah. So, so I, I, you were talking about how, uh, relating quite aptly, the music industry to the comic book industry. I think the one place that's different and better is that when you had all of the uh, die cut covers and the chromium covers and the and the oh oh you need to buy all five trading cards and here's a cinder block with Nightcrawler written on it and crayon. I mean all of that stuff. You, you sort of had that, and that took up 95% of the channels. So finding stuff that wasn't that was, was still then very hard. Yeah. Um, the all good that stuff, for, for instance, like all that stuff shut out, like ElfQuest and Virgo, to an yeah, extent. Yeah, to an extent, yeah, to an extent. The, 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 the signal-to-noise ratio. Yeah. The, the good news is that the, the pipe now for music is so wide that – Yes, you can have these people who are doing the equivalent, the music equivalent of the of the die cut covers, and I'm going to wear a dress made of beef, and I'm going to uh, you know rub myself with a foam finger. Which, by the way, they actually talked to the inventor of the foam finger to get his take on that, which I thought was hilarious. Um, oh, this is the bit they had on a uh, uh, 2013 wipe. Yes, yes. So that was great. Um, but so you can have all of that, and that's fine. You kids go over there and make as much noise as you want. We can be over here in in you know and and not lose signal for all this other stuff and still find stuff that you know is a bit more I don't want to say dignified but maybe a little less insane maybe a little better medicated I don't know. Uh, so but, there's so there's like a place for all of the people to do the wacky crazy stuff and yeah. then. There's, you know, stuff. There's, there's room for the hipsters. To go yeah. find your, so. go find your <laughs> stuff on cassette, and and then you know people who you know 
just want to, hey, Beyonce, release a record in two days. There you go. Have it. You yeah. know? I think I think that's I think that's the, the great thing is that music has gotten about where television is, where it's like there, there's there's so much room for anything that you want. Um, it's just a matter of now that there's so much room and so much bandwidth and so much pipe. How does anybody make any money off of it so that they can keep doing it? And I think that yeah. that is still the continuing question uh, in how do you survive in such an environment where where I mean, because hey, where everything's available. Well, yeah, yeah. The good news is anything goes, and the bad news is anything goes. You know, so it's it is a it is a double-edged sword of Damocles that I think still has not been sorted out. Hell, it still hasn't really been sorted out on the television side of things. You know. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's still washing out, and I I don't even think it'll get solved in this coming year. I think this is something no. that we're going to see gradually, uh, and 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 I think. Uh, stuff like Kickstarter and stuff like Indiegogo is a good first step in whatever direction it needs to go in. But I think there's still a bunch more hurdles that need to happen that will make things slightly more sane, you know? Uh, yeah. but, we'll, but, but we'll see what those are. I, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. The other, the other battle of this, too, is you know, sort of the Western world versus the non-Western world in distribution, whereas here we can put everything digital and make everything immediate, but if the record's coming out in a part of Eastern Europe or some parts, you know, of, of Asia, it has to do the more traditional physical release yeah. because the technology mechanisms aren't as there. Now, conversely, that funnel works backwards in that I have listened to more music from other countries in the last two or three years, not because I've not wanted to, but because I have access to it. And I have to tell you, I have to shut the switch off because I literally will come into a room and say, I've heard a copy of Running Up That Hill in Dutch. And at some point, you just have to go, okay, really? stop. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's all kinds of crap like that that's out. There's, a, there's, some, there's an amazing cover of, you know, Off of My Cloud by these two pop singers in, from Spain. I mean, it's just loads of, like, really great stuff. And everybody's putting all the archive stuff out. So on top of the new stuff, oh, yeah. you've got all this stuff that's archived. We haven't even touched upon that yet, you know. Oh, all um, the Peel tapes are coming. All of them. Yes, I know. <laughs> well, and, and, that's, and that's the crazy thing, too, is that I'll find some, you know, what was it? Uh, I just, uh, okay, so, so, someone else I discovered uh, at the very end of the year was White Denim, which, which I actually really enjoy. And I found that there, oh, oh, here's this great album, Fitz. Oh, no, wait a minute. That's like 10 years old. This is the expanded edition, and it's just showing yeah. up in Spotify as being brand new. I'm still behind the times. It's but, okay. Um, yeah, no, I know. But, but that's the thing is that, that there's almost – it's so hard to tell what the reissues are. I mean, yes, if, if you've got – oh, here's, an, here's another Otis Redding release. Chances are I'm not going to mistake that for something that's new, right? Yeah. Right. But, but, if it's, but if it's a new band, uh, you know, you just go, oh, Jesus, I can't, you know, I, I barely can keep up with what's out now. Now, now, I'm, now I'm pulling in uh, expanded and deluxe editions from God knows when. Uh, God help me. I think I'm doomed. So. The Witch? Yeah. Otis Redding, is he that guy that sounds like Bruno Marx? Bruno Marx? Is that one of the Marx brothers that I'm not familiar with? <laughs> Bruno Mars, sorry. Oh. No, no, he exclusively sounds like the police. It's fine. Oh, okay. He sounds like the pleas, the pleas of people saying, 
please don't don't do anything other than that one single. Yes, that's what they yeah. said for Sting too. So you know, <laughs> well, eventually that works. That works too. But you know, I, I believe almost... I believe actually Stuart Copeland is trying to get a feud with Bruno Mars. So I, I'm sure it works out in cycles. That'd be awesome. But <laughs> I also think too that there's almost like a top tier of people that their albums are events, their tours are events, and everybody else sort of getting there. We'll, we'll decide if we'll let you in. And it's kind of like Arcade Fire's there now. It's like, okay, do we let them in to be an arena band? Or are we still waiting? Because as much as I'm seeing that band on TV, I'm not sure that record's doing really well. That's not doing very well. It's that, you know, And that kind of goes back to the point that I was saying about, because I was about to throw, you know, Arcade Fire on that, which was, you know, we had the Arcade Fire album hyped months, and it was basically replaced Daft Punk in the hype cycle, after the Daft Punk album was released, then we started hearing Arcade Fire records coming. Oh, it's coming. Oh, it's coming. And then it came out, and it was a good record, but it wasn't like it came out yeah. and that was it. And, and people stopped talking about it, basically. But make sure you wear your suit and your sport coat when you listen to it. I, no. Sorry. <laughs> nice. Thank you. I almost think charts are irrelevant, though, too. Like, I would not want to be, like, right now, I don't think Casey Kasem could assemble America's Top 40 and have it be a realistic representation of the charts. Well, you know, it's not even a charts thing, I think, from what I'm, what I'm seeing. Uh, I, what I'm sort of seeing is, you know, you sort of have the discussion of a record or a record that's coming out. It's sort of the, the what Widge was talking about and what you've been talking about, about, you know, oh, there's so much more coming out now. Right. Yeah. So it's not just it's sort of. I won't say disposable, but once, you know, the discussion almost ends when the record comes out now where it's sort yeah. of it used to be something it would be something like you would talk about it over, you know, the two year cycle of, OK, the band tours and the singles and all that. But now it's just instant. Boom, the record's out and we're done with it, you know. Yeah. And I think that's what sort of the shift is. It's not that the records are any more disposable than they used to be. It's just the cycle that the build up to the release and then release, you know, unless you are Timberlake and you keep releasing singles, your your records out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. and, well, I, and, I, and I think that's the interesting thing, because it used to be, you know, it used to be we would, you know. The, the, we would still be talking about records from certain bands like, you know, the U2 record would have a certain shelf life and like whether we liked it or not, or like, you know, Thriller, Thriller went for God, Thriller went for four years. You were yeah. still hearing shit from Thriller. Well, uh, this, this sounds a lot like we could be talking about movies. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's just the cycle of, you know, the thing being in conversation or like even, you know, even singles were being released or even that the record was still relevant. It's like immediately because everything is available, it's like immediately the moment the record comes out, we're done talking about it. Yeah. And more and more bands are releasing their stuff exclusively through their own labels. Yeah. So that they get more money, which is another interesting sort of product of all this too. It is. It, and I think that's what we're just relating to. It is sort of this sort of first week thing it's this first weekend phenomenon yeah because they think of, everyone has a short attention span 
because everybody has short attention span. Well, but everybody does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I mean, that's that's the thing is, it's like, you know, it, it's at least as far as the as, as the industry goes, it's gotten to the point where you've got to hit and hit big. And like you said, either you're you're releasing singles, which is another way of hitting again, or you're done. And sorry, but we need room in the Cineplex for the next movie that's opening this coming weekend. I mean, th that's that's really yeah. what it's turned into. It's it's that a, a lot of it is there's so much of it that so much of it becomes disposable. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's, and and wh that's what's sad is that, that really, if you look at it, only only uh, I mean. There, there's some really great stuff. There's some okay stuff. There's some decent stuff, and really, not much of it's disposable. You know, at least not that yeah. anyone would pick up. You know, of their own volition. So, so a lot of this stuff, whether it's movies or television or any sort of media these days, including music, deserves more attention than it's getting. And you have to have something that cuts through all the noise. Uh, otherwise, yeah, I mean, nobody's talking about you except your own. Uh, fan base, and for most people, that's not enough to survive. Again, going back to how do you survive? Yeah, yeah. or 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 three 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 old guys in a podcast. So well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because if you look at it through the through the lens of history, the closest time that you can relate this to is between 1921 and 1924, when phonograph records were cracked out, cranked out at such a rate that there was almost so much of it that the market was like, flooded. The market was flooded. And there was just so much that you know, you go, you just when you thought you heard the big record of the day, the next, the next one was already there. And but the difference is at that point you could afford everything because it was a nickel. But yeah, um, but but to but be nickel, fair, Rob, a nickel was a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, but, a nickel, a nickel in today's money, that's about a hundred dollars in today's money. Yeah, but it, it's almost like we're churning them out like that. You know, it, it's kind of like that. The gluttonous market wants so much music that they will just turn it, turn it out and flip it every four days. Sort of. It's just, it's a, it's insane. I mean, it really is insane. So you're suggesting um, we need a musical recession? Is that what you're suggesting? No, I'm just saying that it's it's interesting that everything old is new again, sort of, but also. Um, Everything old is still old. At the same time, it's a it's it's a yeah. very it's a time of interesting hypocrisies across the board. You know, the record industry is trying to distance itself from using the music, the um, movie industry as a model, but yet it does, and it also uses the music industry to or the movie industry to sell records because it can't sell them on their own. You know, it's it's kind of weird. You know, it's kind of like this isn't the girl I want to take to the dance, but I'm going to dance with her anyway. You know, it's <laughs> kind of no. I mean, it, it, everybody's spending so much time not trying to be this other thing than they are that it's fascinating. And well, but 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 they are more than ever because really, if everything's yeah. if everything's going digital, which it is, then everything's basically the same because you know all of your smart TVs. I mean, like for example. Uh, if I run Plex server here at home, for the most part, it doesn't give a shit what's music and what's movies and what's television. It just says, what what database do you want me to use to look up to find out what this is? Beyond that, it could not care. You know, if you use like AirPlay to use to, to, to access servers on your network, it doesn't care. For the most part, nobody cares. Everything is so interchangeable um, that, the, the you know, the... 
you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, but really, in this case, it's the more things are becoming the same, the more they're the same. Yeah. If that makes any sense at all. It does, but at the same time, vinyl sales are up, you know. I mean, it's just kind of weird. Well, yeah, I, I, I would again, and again, maybe that's from the standpoint of uh, in a in an insane world of of anything goes, if anything yeah, can anything go, goes. maybe that's a way to, to you know to have some sanity. Is if you go, okay, if I yeah. focus on, and this is just a theory because I I I love the concept of vinyl, but I can't get my head around it because I can't walk around with a you know a radio a, a record player in my pocket. Exactly. Um, at least yeah. not with the pants I wear these days. And, well, but, well, for example, this podcast will be available in th on a three cassette volume. So uh, no. it, <laughs> operators are standing by. That's, that's the deluxe edition that will have extra tracks. Um, it'll be lost uh, for another thirty years. No, but 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 maybe one of the things about vinyl is okay. In my, it, I'm a, I love music, but if I want to stay sane, maybe if I just focus on vinyl, maybe that'll that'll narrow my focus to the point where I can deal with it. You know what I'm saying? Um, that's just that's just one theory because uh, for the most yeah. part, I, I you know I saw toughly you said that what forty nine thousand copies of Daft Punk went to went on vinyl, right? Yeah. It I I I I find it hard to believe that you have forty nine thousand people who are that in love with the feel of vinyl. Now now Rob might no. shoot me, but no, you're fine because uh, I gave up on on vinyl a decade ago. Yeah yeah. So. But, well, the thing is, a lot of those. I, I would think a good chunk of both Daft Punk and Vampire Weekend's sales were based on the fact that uh, those were special editions that also included. Or the vinyl a comes download. out before. The... Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That, that also included a digital download, and the hardcore fans are buying those, but not necessarily people who own record players. Yeah. I would also to like to see. Oh, yeah. I, I just real quick, I'd, li I'd like to see how many copies. So if you're buying it because you want to get it early and get the digital download. Uh, did we then see 48,000 copies of Daft Punk go on eBay? No. <laughs> Just curious. Probably not, because I would imagine it's the same thing of, and I, I, I kind of have an idea of this, it's like the special editions of certain video games. You know, they usually come with some sort of tchotchke that, you know, either it's a, you know, final figure or cards or a poker chip or, I wouldn't know anything about this, by the way. Um, I'm with you, brother. But, uh, you know, there, there's these certain special editions of stuff, and you're going to see some of these things on eBay, but most people keep them. You know? Yeah. So I would imagine it's the same thing. I think diehard fans will shell out for the Uber Deluxe Edition. And this kind of started with Radiohead, that they offered the, yeah. the Uber edition of something that included two versions of the record, and, you know, there was the, th the thick vinyl version, and well, the packaging, yeah, well, and the and the download yeah. and all of that. So although a lot of it shows up on Discogs more than, than yeah. eBay, but yeah. Yeah, but but you'll see that you'll 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 it's like any collectible, and I think I do really do feel like it's going toward as more people kind of latch onto that and more people kind of see that the special edition is you're going to see exactly what happened to the comic marketplace that it's going to you know. There's going to be a boom and a bust, and it's going to flatline at some point, um, which yeah. is really sad for people who actually do get vinyl for their actual playing needs. 
So yeah. well, I mean, it's also an income thing too. It's that yeah. some people can still get records because they don't have the ability to get a phone or an iPhone or an iPad or any of that. Yeah. So. But but it'll be interesting to watch some of this stuff, like you said, is going to break during the year, and some of it's going to be evolving, and that's why we have this podcast, also because yeah. nobody reads our blogs. So, um... <laughs> speak for yourself, white man. Yes, I know. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, the blog that you know somebody reads, uh, which if we wanted to buy like any of the music, like say I wanted to buy the uber collectible vinyl edition of Daft Punk, um, where would I go to do that and support you at the same time? Well, supporting all of us in the Need Coffee family, uh, you can go to needcoffee.com/amazon, uh, and that will take you to the front page of Amazon like nothing happened, but really magic happened. The magic of the internet uh, because anything you then buy in that session, uh, we get kickbacks for. Um, if you're trying to do a search, you can on pretty much every page on Need Coffee, you'll see on the right-hand side there, a little thing that says Amazon search. And if you search there, it will take you to Amazon with your search results. So either way, uh, you can uh, you can find what you want. And it doesn't matter if it's on a 99 cent MP3 or uh, you know one of those crazy cassette deck things that you would use to play the cassettes that Rob's been getting. Um, we get kickbacks for all of it, and it all adds up. Uh, and even if you don't want to do that, uh, if any of you if you enjoy the music podcast, uh, share it with uh, someone that you love. Uh, if you don't like it, share it with someone you hate. We don't care. We're pretty much uh, equal opportunity. Uh, but Just share you know, it. We know that there's about 14,000 social networks out there. Uh, if you enjoy this, pick two and share it on those. <coughs> Please. 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 And uh, you can uh, find all of us on those various uh, social medias. You can find me uh, at the very highly creative at Tuffley on Twitter. Uh, I'm also on Facebook under JM Tuffley. Uh, guys, what are your handles if you want to give them out? Uh, now, I'd like to say I find that offensive because I have been trying to diet again, and my handles are much smaller. No one was talking about your handles. Oh. Your 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 internet thingy. Oh. Your, oh. Your location beacon, sir. This, 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 now, now Rob will do the Doctor Who joke. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am Widget with two Ts on, uh, on Twitter. And Rob, uh, what are you, Rob? Uh, I, oh, for Twitter, I am Rob underscore um, Levy, uh, Rob underscore Levy on Twitter. And then um, on Facebook, you can either do it as Rob Levy as a, as a Facebook search, or uh, there is a juxtaposition page as well. On so. kdhx.org, correct? Well, there is actually a juxtaposition page on kdhx, which is sort of nice and professional and very radio station associated with, but the juxtaposition Facebook page, I can find, you know, YouTube clips of things I like, or if there's a band news or something like that, I post it on there. That's a little more immediate than. Okay. But if you want playlists for the show, archived editions of the show, uh, things like that, then go to kdhx.org. Uh, and all these links you'll be able to find on the show notes, uh, the post on Need Coffee. Uh, so go to Need Copy and look for the soundboard, and you will find them there as well. And that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the soundboard. Uh, Join us next time when we'll actually be talking about things that happened in 2014, hopefully. Uh, until then, we'll see you later. Bye. Ta-da! Yay. Okay. All right.
and stopping.